All right, welcome. I've not had an alleged paramilitary on the podcast yet. So delighted to have Frank Portinari with us. Sent me his book, absolutely brilliant. Recommend you read it. Link is going to be in the description box below this video. Or if you're on your phone, just click over that little arrow, down arrow. You can see all the information about Frank. And I'm just going to start out with what were you actually charged with by the priest? What did they allege that you'd done? Uh, the charges were possession of weapons, um, which at the time was uh, seven handguns, some automatic, some semi-automatic. Uh, they consequently found a rifle afterwards. Um, and the other charge was it, wa it was supplying persons unknown to endanger persons unknown. And what were the police alleging that these weapons were going to be used for? Uh, they clearly said they were for offensive weapons. Uh, I did try to, to convince um, my uh, legal team that they were purely for defensive reasons. Yes. I clearly knew that wasn't the case. I clearly knew that they were going to be put into the hands of, of people that were going to use them, basically. And around the time of these events, were people getting killed? Oh, quite significantly. And yeah. who were these people who were getting killed? Uh, well, I'd like to think in the main that they were either people that were IRA members or they were certainly to, to some degree, you know, where they were supplying them with information or supplying them with weapons and so on. Could you just briefly explain who the IRA is? Uh, well, the IRA would basically be the Irish Republican Army, uh, specifically in recent years, they would have been the, actually the provisional IRA because the IRA had split on more than one occasion. Um, uh, and I suppose how they would probably be want to be described, they were fighting for United Ireland. And how would they classify you guys? I would be very much fighting for a United Kingdom, or the retention of the United Kingdom. And what were the names of the groups that the police alleged you were involved in? Uh, that would have been uh, would more commonly known as the UDA, uh, which is the Ulster Defence Association. Uh, there is another organisation connected to that, the Ulster Freedom Fighters. Um, so that would have been the uh, that would have been both groups I would have been a um, a member of. All right. So before we get to how someone from London ends up in this <laughs> heavy situation, how did it end up that you got arrested? What was what went down the day of your arrest? I w I'd been told on a previous visit to uh, to Belfast that something was going to happen, uh, potentially going to happen, uh, and they wanted uh, weapons that hadn't been used before. Um, and could they be could they be sourced? And uh, I said yes, that's 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 not a problem, and uh, that was done. And uh, one of our Fellas from London was due to meet somebody in Birmingham over the course of a bank holiday weekend. This was in May 93. And the contact wasn't made, basically. There was a specific place to meet. It was called the Perry Bar Stadium in Birmingham. Anybody that knows the Perry Bar Stadium will tell you it's a Greyhound Stadium. 
the chap who went there stayed for some considerable time, probably longer than he should have, because he clearly didn't know at the time he was under observation, um, and returned to London. Uh, subsequently, I met him on the Sunday. Not very happy because I didn't think he put us in a very good light. Broke the golden rule. Uh, lost my temper and basically said, fuck it, I'll do it myself. Uh, so on the Monday, uh, I drove to Birmingham and I met the contact there. I did eventually, purely by chance, because he'd said something at a later stage. He mentioned uh, a lodge house, a park. There is no lodge house at Perry Bar Stadium. So on the Saturday, he'd actually gone to the wrong place. Unfortunately, my chap has been vilified ever since uh, by the media that he'd gone to the wrong place. He's also appeared on television in a in a documentary where they did a, a reenactment of the events. Uh, so he's basically been accused of being, the, you know, of being the cause of us being captured, so to speak. And in fact, he was in the right place. On that day, did you notice anything suspicious? No, I will say this. At that stage, I'd probably grown a bit blasé. I'd had warnings. Um, more than one occasion, I'd had warnings. Uh, I wouldn't say I felt I was invincible, but... Yeah, I'd probably grown a little bit blasé. And I was asked to go to a uh, to a pub where there was another pub opposite it. And uh, I didn't know that there was a woman sitting there with a handbag, which consequently had a camera in, a video camera. Some of the bar staff um, were police officers. I discovered that afterwards when... Uh, an alleged um, drinker got up and said, uh, can you turn the heat? You know, it wasn't a particularly cold day. <laughs> uh, and funny enough, a journalist wrote an article up, not long afterwards called uh, Turning the Heat Up. But, <laughs> so it's, you know, it was a bit of a piss take, but there you go. And uh, yeah, so that was to say the contact had been made. We'd, we'd basically met up. Um, we went to a car park. Um, someone had driven him there which to this day I'm a little bit suspicious about but I won't go into that um, I took the bag from the boot of my car placed it into the boot of the other car um, went to go back to the original pub that I was in as we turned the corner two, two fellows were walking towards me with uh, sort of coats pulled over they clearly had no intentions of getting out of my way and I almost said get out of the fucking way and one of them just opened up his coat and he had a Heckler and Cock hanging off of his shoulder well they both did and uh, cars just came out of nowhere and when you, when you see it on television you sort of say to yourself fuck that you know I want to be in that position you suddenly are and they just came out of everywhere. Was um, there a split second where you thought possibly you were getting taken out? 
Well, certainly not with dinner, I know that much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Well, looking back on it now, I, I didn't know who those two fellas were. Um, I just took it for granted that they was police, I suppose. Okay. Um, but it's so quick. I mean, the, 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 uh, the surprise element definitely worked. And you were very quickly told to get on the floor. Uh, I got on the floor. I went to look at where the other chap was, and someone kindly come over with an handgun and smashed me straight into the cheekbone, which I instinctively, you know, in, you know whatever, and went to jump up because I'd been hurt. And, uh, you know, another one then came with the, with, the, uh, with the machine gun, and, you know, very quickly. So, I think at that point, obviously, I knew it was the police. It was the police. How soon was it before you knew what you'd been charged with? They they took me to uh, I think it was called Steelhouse Lane. I'm not sure if that was the police station or the holding centre afterwards before getting taken to, to the to the prison. Um, what they did do was they put me in a cell right near the main desk, the front desk. Uh, so I had my ear to the door permanently. And I remember this young copper walking in and saying, is this the tail end of Saturday's operation, Sarge? And it was Monday. So that did me a massive favour because that alerted me to the fact that they knew that my mate had been up there Saturday. Uh, I knew I was paying the rights. It was, it was simple as that. Uh, I was more concerned about conspiracy charges uh, and things that had gone on in the past that I'd assumed I'd got away with. Um, so it's pretty straight. It was pretty straightforward. It was pretty much, you know, they. I'd got caught with a bag. I had to answer. I knew it was in the bag. That's the difference. Um, so, so when there's a conspiracy, you got co-defendants. Were you concerned about other people getting arrested immediately? That as well. Which I think it was why it was it was in everybody's interest that I pleaded guilty straight away because it was damage limitations for me, and it was damage limitations for other people as well, and consequently nobody else did get arrested. From the jail, was there a way you could call a neutral person to set an alert out that you'd been arrested? <laughs> because of something we discussed earlier, mm. that was the way. I see. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. <laughs> and then where did they take you next? Uh, can I quickly tell you something that they said while I was questioning yeah. me, which I was under the impression that um, the tape had stopped running, so to speak, and uh, a sort of flippant comment like, ah, well, Frank, you know what guns are for, don't you? And me, I said, yeah, I'm shooting people. The same way you'd have said to me, what's that lighter for? I saw it lighting a fag. It was put to me that way. And I said, well, it's for shooting. I didn't say the guns that I had were for shooting people. Yeah. I, you know, it was a generalisation. So that came back to haunt me. Slightly. Anything you say will be used against yeah. you. And when I've heard you say it so many times yeah. on your podcast, so <laughs> you should have said it, you should have made these podcasts before. <laughs> cool. uh, but yeah, I just thought it was a standard, I just thought it was a standard conversation. And um, During that interrogation, were they laying it on you? Like you're going to be doing a massive sentence, you need to cooperate with us, all that kind of thing? No, it was of any deals. Uh, no comments about things they 
either thought I'd previously done or they knew I'd done. This is why I maintain that I believe that at that particular time, um, the peace process was, was pretty much coming into play. When you say the peace process, can you just describe what that means for the viewers? Uh, the process where I think most sides had realised nobody was winning. I don't think the security forces were winning. I don't think the, the IRA were winning. Um, and who's fighting who? Well, the UDA uh, were, were clearly was set up as a defence organisation. So basically what the army couldn't do and what the Royal Ulster Constabulary couldn't do and also the Ulster Defence Regiment, which is a legal um, division you know, of the army, um, what they couldn't do and what people felt they weren't providing the right protection for specific communities, specifically interface communities. Um that that's why people decided to defend. When you their say what the army couldn't do, which army? Well, they could the British Army. They okay. couldn't active. They couldn't actively go out and assassinate people, for want of a better way of putting yep. it. If there was a gunfight and they and they killed somebody, they killed somebody. Yeah. But they weren't allowed to actively go out and kill people. I mean, they've got their rules. Uh, <laughs> so, for want of a better way of putting it, we we weren't governed by the same set of rules. It's like I'm just writing about Escobar. I've been writing about Escobar for a long time, and um, the Colombian government was just at the point where he's got to go by any means necessary. So then they, a death squad was formed called Los Pepes, mm. which was some of his former men who were frightened of him, which was some financed by the Cali cartel, police, military guys who couldn't kill people legally. They joined. So we got this combination of people mm. becoming Los Pepes, and then they just you know, wiping out everybody that Pablo knows, all his workers, everybody. So that's where the Paladin Mirities were stepping in yep. in this situation that you're describing. Yeah. Okay, that's clear now. So were you anticipating at some point in your life you might get arrested and you might get interrogated and you kind of like we're, we're a bit trained in what to say and what not to say? Uh, not really, no, because as I say, I think there was a bit of blaseness about what I was doing. Um and I am convinced that, as I say, because of that peace process that was taking place between politicians, pe politicians were going into the maze prison and speaking to Republican prisoners and loyalist prisoners. Um, and then there was a ceasefire. I feel that the authorities here had spent enough time and enough money following us around um, and I think someone took a decision and I think somebody just said, come on, let's just throw the net over them and let's just get them out of the way. Because they could have actually done me for far worse at other times, at other periods. Um, and a good friend of mine, Terry, was arrested at the same time. He's a South London boy. Another friend from the East Midlands uh, was arrested. And I just find it all a bit of a, bit of a coincidence. So how does a paramilitary from London fit into the prison community? What's it like going in there? Not good. Not good? Why is that? It can it can be good in the sense that there's a degree of notoriety. Don't fuck about with him. Um, but you've got to remember there was a lot of Irish Republican prisoners in the prison system. Some serious players. Um, and they'd formed alliances with um, long-term prisoners. 
So you you didn't necessarily work on the basis, oh, he's he's a Londoner, you know, or he's British or he's English, so therefore he's on my side. It's not necessarily the case. Um, in fact, when I was when I was eventually sentenced, the the head of security in Winston Green thought he was being really smart, and he came up to me and he words to the effect. Well, it won't be long now, will it? He said, "When till we send you to Long Larton, where there was quite a few um, IRA men. And he, he thought he was being funny. And I just said to him, no problem, mate. I said, because when I get there, I said, I'm going to do the fucking first one I see. And when there's a big inquiry, I'll quote your name. <laughs> he, didn't see it, he didn't think it was so funny, did he? He didn't think it was so funny, did he? Um, Subsequently, I didn't get sent to Long Island. I'll never know. Listen, I'll never know whether I was ever meant to go there in the first place. Um, but I kind of mentally prepared myself for that scenario. But in, a, in, in ordinary prison life, um, you might think you're special because you're saying to yourself, well, I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not a bank robber. I've not mugged an old lady. I've not raped anybody. Uh, doesn't matter. You're That's wish where you got to live for you know our, our next few years so you can't go over the top and go oh well you know i'm not a villain um i'm in it because i'm it's my view i'm doing my beliefs my beliefs it's what i believe in people don't really want to hear that people don't really want to hear that what was your first day in prison like and which prison was it it was winston green was that uh it's in birmingham uh and it wasn't anything like I perceived prison to be. Uh, it was a very old Victorian prison. I didn't know that I was going to be category A status. Which is uh, maximum security. And to explain that, what that is, is basically if they, if they perceive you have the ways and means to escape. So if you're part of a bigger organization, that's quite possible. Um, and that was reflected every time I got taken to court because the security was ridiculous. Um, so I get taken into the prison. Very modern, very modern front of this prison, by the way. <laughs> uh, it changes quite a lot once you get in it. Uh, and I found myself on a wing where there was 16 cells. They never used all 16 cells. They only ever use eight cells. And the reason is because every so many days they take you out of your cell. There's no point sticking a picture up on your wall. I ain't fucking staying there long. So they take you out and put you in another cell on the other side. Another way of stopping you planning. Of every day you move. Every, no, no, not every, no, every day. other day. You just didn't know what day. <sighs> so it could be twice in the same week. Yeah. It could be every other week. Yeah. But that was that was the theory. That oh, was it's got to be stressful because you get in a cell and you establish yourself. And well, it wasn't exactly comfortable <laughs> to be honest. So you didn't get too attached. You didn't actually get too attached, and one looked pretty much the same as the yeah. other. Yeah. Um, but I remember the the, the, the screw uh, guard, as I know I have to say, you American uh, viewers now. Um, he opened the door and uh, he said words to the effect, "Welcome to Winston Green." the last bastion of the POA, which is the I learned was the Prison Officers Association. 
very proud of the fact that it was the last bastion. Um, I very quickly realised as well that that's where the Birmingham Six had been held. Can you just explain what the Birmingham Six are? The Birmingham Six were the people who were arrested for the Birmingham pub bombings, where there was basically it was in 1974. There was 21. There were 21 victims and. Well, died. I mean, there was numerous other people that had horrendous injuries. Were they RA? Uh, at the time, they were they were thought of. They were, but they were responsible. Oh, they ended up getting exonerated. Didn't yes, they? yes. Uh, these screws were the same screws that I'll say allegedly. Um, basically, gave them a very rough time, and subsequently, I found out that my barrister had defended the screws who'd done it. So I was connected in a very roundabout way, if you like. Um, so he shut, he slammed the door. He slammed the door. And I think at that moment, it suddenly hit me that you ain't going home tonight. <laughs> you know, you're just not. Um, this isn't sitting around your local police station waiting for someone to come and bail you out, you know. If they showed a barrister, the guards, with you, your lawyer was their lawyer, and you were fighting the guys they brutalized in prison, did that then give you a degree of respect from the guards? Because the enemy of my enemy is my friend? There was some of that. There was some of that. It, de- it depended how how army fellas viewed you and someone's which generation as well. Some of them saw you as being on the same side because they'd obviously lost friends during the conflict. So these guards were army, ex-army? A lot of them tended to be ex-army, yes. Uh, not so much now, but back then, certainly 1993, I'd say the bulk of them were. You could get, you could get some who were ex-army who was, you're as bad as them. I understand that. I understand that. But, the, but by far the majority were sympathetic, were sympathetic. Uh, and the first, the first night, shall we say, in the cell, uh, one of I remember someone coming up and sort of just looking in and sort of going, and he sort of said, "You'll be all right," like you know. I, thought, I can't imagine how I'm going to be all right, but uh, <laughs> the lights went off. Uh, uh, oh, the first night, I beg your pardon, they came along and they uh, they slung these pajamas in. And I can only say it's to ridicule you because the sleeves are up here, you know, the legs up there, uh, buttons are missing down the front. You might as well not have them. You basically might as well not have them on. Um, they tell you you can apply for a phone call in the morning. You can, um, you you know, write out a little bit of paper and say, but of course I wasn't going to get any phone calls. I couldn't make any phone calls because I'd had no security clearance to make any phone calls. So that took a while. That took a while to get to that status. But the first night, uh, I sort of laid on this bed and uh, I've described it as, I know what your heart is. I know what your liver is, your lungs, their organs you can see. Uh, But when people say your soul, uh, you can't see a soul. But it felt like somebody had reached in and literally ripped out my soul. I, I felt that deflated. I felt that. Not because I got caught. 
it was more what the consequences of being caught was in regards to my family. That felt really bad. That felt because I suddenly realised how vulnerable I'd left them, and that was not a good feeling. And it's never been a good feeling since, quite frankly. Were you having to uh, fight the urge to call them and reassure them because you couldn't call them because you had to get security clearance? The only thing I will say is because I'd been with my wife so long, basically since we were 15, we kind of pretty much knew each other uh, inside out. Um, I had said to her some day, uh, one day that there is something that only you and I know. If the police ever say to you what that is, you'll know I've caved in. And that consequently, that never happened. That never happened. So you're in this supermax cell then, first day, you're about to get moved around and stuff, so they can't, you know, you guys can't plot escapes and things like that, I assume. Security. Who are your neighbours now at this point? And are you interacting with any prisoners? You're not allowed to. You weren't allowed to. You, they literally opened up the door in the morning. They'd open up the door in the morning and um, there'd be a hot plate. And they would say to you, you know, here's your breakfast. What was on your hot plate? <laughs> Porridge. <laughs> uh, I can't specifically. It's probably egg and bacon. Was your adrenaline like going like crazy from this arrest? Could you eat even? Uh, I've got quite a good appetite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I couldn't do was get rid of it because it was a plastic bucket with a lid in the corner of the cell. And I refused for four days to demean myself and squat over that bucket. Taking a shit in the bucket. That ain't happening. I thought, that is not happening. So you held it in for four days. And after four days, I'm afraid the old system kicks in and you use that bucket. Oh, you must have been hurting. I didn't want to do it. Oh. And um, then you obviously, you, you get the opportunity to go and uh, slop out. So do you get the opportunity right away to get rid of it? Or is it sat in the cell? Oh, once you've gone, yeah, you can. You, I mean, you can't just whenever you want to. I mean, there's a specific time that they'll say, "Look, you know, we're going to take you out." Um, but yeah, it was. Um, it was pretty. Uh, it was like Victorian conditions to be. It was freezing cold. You, I literally used to get in bed with my clothes on, with blankets, and I'd go to write a letter. It got to the stage where your hands cramped up. You couldn't actually mm. write the letter. Um, you were lucky if you got one shower a week. Uh, you couldn't go to the canteen. You couldn't go to the gym. You couldn't go to church. Uh, you could say you couldn't interact with anybody else. You didn't have any association. Um I did finally get to make a phone call. The only person I could phone at that time was my wife. Um, I remember the first conversation because I was looking at 10 to 14 years and saying to her, listen, there's no way do I expect you to expect to sit around that length of time. Wow. Um, where, where you make the phone call, there is a room adjacent and Somebody sits in there and watches the tape go round. The, the fellow who did that, when I'd finished, oh, the reason is because if you say anything you shouldn't, they instantly cut you off. Um, when I'd finished the conversation, he came running out. And in, in all fairness to him, 
he said to me, what the fuck do you think you're doing? I said, what do you mean? And he said, there's a woman there, he said, who clearly loves you and clearly wants you to come home. And you're basically saying goodbye to her. And I hadn't thought about it that way. He'd obviously heard that type of conversation so many times. Uh, and he, he done me a massive... Listen, I was only saying it half-hearted anyway because he felt that's what you should be saying. Yeah. It's not what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, but he 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 done me a favour there because it kind of turned my head around a little bit. Then I thought, well, yeah, you know, that makes sense. Um, but the conditions remained like that for quite quite a while. When you say slopping out, disposing of your shit, what did that actually entail? Just going to like a large scale sink, almost like, and you chip so it from your there. cell. Yeah, yeah. In on your you never did it at the same time as anybody else. It was it was strictly on your own. Yeah. And how long was it then before you um, bump into other prisoners? The next, the the next day, the next day, uh, you were told you were going to get uh, exercise. Uh, you came out. You went to the end of this wing, and then there was a door, and then there was a set of steps that went down, and there was a small yard which had uh, corrugated iron all around it, so you couldn't see out of it. No one could see in, and then there'd be barbed wire on top of that. And uh, when I when I I went there and, and there was one other person, there was one other person walking around the yard, who I recognised instantly. And who was that? Uh, Charlie Bronson. Charles Bronson. <laughs> that was my that was my introduction to prison <laughs> uh, prison inmates. What year was this then? Ninety three. Yeah, May ninety three. Did he stand out as an imposing character? Yes, just a bit. <laughs> <laughs> If I remember rightly, he was wearing a boiler suit. Uh, no, not a boiler suit. It was a bib and brace, like a bib and brace thing. A bib and brace. And he had uh, like obnail boots on and he was uh, marching around, shall we say. It was part of his exercise regime I learned after. And he'd, he'd heard us mentioned on the radio, so he knew who we were. My other, my co-defendant, one of them came in just behind me and... Uh, I think it's one of his first lots of words. Apart from the fact he'd said he'd heard us on the radio, he said, oh, what's your football team? <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, who on earth can he possibly support? I knew he'd come from the Luton area, you know. Um, so I thought, oh, I just saw it in for a penny. I just said, oh, Tottenham, mate, like, you know. Oh, good man. He went, good man. Oh, fuck for that. And, like, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and he, he, he just said what he'd heard on the radio and um, – my, my other code wasn't the tallest of people came down. He was the chap from Belfast. And he said, oh, what's your name? And he said, oh, Jim. You know, so they call me Budgie. He said, but my name's Jim. He went, here, Jim. And he, he, he squatted down. He said, lay across my shoulders. And Jim went, what? What? He went, no, go on. He went, lay across my shoulders, which he did. And he basically started doing these <laughs> sort of press-ups, lift-ups, whatever. <laughs> but it got worse because all of a sudden you you heard this rip of his the bottoms of the bib and brace. And I thought, oh fuck's sake. And he just gave this manic laugh. He sort of it started off like You thought, thank God he's laughing. He's at least he's like at least he is laughing. So his crotch had ripped or something. Yeah. Yeah. From doing these push ups with your mate on his back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you <laughs> You couldn't know how he was going to take it, could you? Was he going to accuse him of of, of ripping them? You know, or was he, rip my it, well, you can't. That's what I was expecting, and, and he just gave this 
thankfully gave this uh, this manic laugh. Yeah. Um, and then the next day, the other Cody, the one that had been up previously on the, he'd been arrested by now, and he'd been questioned. Um, the next day, he came down first with me, and I made a point of saying to him, "Listen, don't say anything in front of the other fella. We don't know him. We don't know him." Um, he obviously said to me, as I said, had I said, did he know what was in the bag? And I said, well, no, of course not. So I said, and if you carry on saying you didn't know what's in the bag, you're going up. Yeah. And consequently, five and a half weeks later, it might have been six, he did go home. Then I saw the true character of the other fella because as far as he was concerned, he said he didn't know what was in the bag. <laughs> and I said, well, you got caught with it. He didn't. So you got a case to answer. That's when I first started to get a bit uncomfortable about it. Right, before we get to that, then, reading the book, there was another story about Bronson with the leg. Can you run that one down yeah. for us, please? Yeah, yeah. Uh, on the news, we heard that um, somebody called Michael Sams had been arrested for the kidnap of uh, of a lady called um, Stephanie Slater. And he kidnapped her and he'd made a box in his workshop in, um, I'll think of the name of it in a minute. Um, no, I'll think of the workshop, but somewhere up near that way. Newark, beg your pardon, it was Newark, a place called Newark. And what he'd done is he'd arranged to pick up the, um, the ransom money by he had like a scooter type thing on an old disused railway track and they would lower the money down from a bridge obviously when it's very dark and then he was going to scoot off and so anyway he got captured he got captured and he, he was sent to Winston Green and at that time I think it was ju just me and Charlie was on the was on the I think my mate had gone the other fellow hadn't come. I think his solicitor had come along for a meeting, so it was just me and Charlie. And he came down the stairs, this, um, this Michael Sands, and I thought, I'm not having it with him. Fuck that. I'm not having it. He's no way I'm walking around that yard with that man. And as he sort of came down, I said to Charlie, I'm not having it, Charlie, mate. I'm not, you know, and he was the same. It's only because I'd got in just before him, quite frankly, and the screws took him back up. Um. And for the first time ever, Charlie wanted to get off the yard before me. You know, we only got 15, 20 minutes anyway. So you, you want to be out as long as you can because you're banged up the rest of the time. And um, couldn't work out why he'd done it. Well, they wouldn't let Michael Sams have his false leg in his cell. It was propped up against the wall. So when I come upstairs, I noticed the leg was missing. <laughs> so it didn't take a lot of working out who had the leg. <laughs> and uh, of course, he was taunting him. He was uh, he was taunting Sam's, and he was taunting the, the screws because no one was going to be brave enough to go in that cell because he'd have battered on with the leg. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, one of those lighter moments of, uh, yeah. of of prison life. Yeah. So he, I take it he got moved then. Yeah, he did, and I mean, and then God, and you know, it's it's, it's infamous for some of the things that he did. Uh, How long were you? Uh out on a wreck with him there or what period of time was that with Bronson on the yard as I say you got 15 about 15 to 20 minutes yeah um, but what how many days was it you were, you, you went were, out every day unless it rained 
Yeah. If it rained, you were going nowhere. Yeah. Um, so it was over a period of weeks you got to meet Charlie. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So a yeah. couple, two, three months for argument's sake. Yeah. Um, he does a good rendition of um, Frank Sinatra. <laughs> and he's got an habit of merging two different songs at the same time. <laughs> so just as you're kind of getting into, uh, you know, I did it my way, you suddenly realise it's New York, New York. You think, <laughs> Hold on. How, how's that work out? But great entertainment. If it was, if it was Ladies' Day at Ascot, for example... You know, the screws would taunt him and say, no, you know, uh, we're, uh, the ladies are going today, Charlie, and we're going tomorrow. He goes, oh, your ladies are going today, oh, don't he? go great, because all my mates would be fucking them. <laughs> you know? So you'd be laying in your cell, pretty, you know, feeling pretty sorry for yourself and depressed, and you'd suddenly hear that, and you'd it'd sort of perk you up, you know, <laughs> perk you up a bit. Did you start working out with him then on his routine? No, where he was a nuisance was because they gave him a medicine ball. And all you heard for large parts of the day was ba-dum, 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 where he bounced the ball up against the door and in the wall and, the, you know, the floor, I should say, and the door, you know, and you could hardly shout at, you know, Charlie, for fuck's sake, turn it in because you yeah. wouldn't have gone down on the yard the next day, basically, because <laughs> you'd probably been your head that would have been ba-dum, ba-dum, you know, so... Um, no, there wasn't. Apart from that, on that yard, there wasn't a great, there wasn't a great deal of interaction. No. Yeah. Were there any other famous or high-profile cases prisoners in there? They had some, they had somebody they called the Pizza Man. The pizza Man. Because he'd come to your door, allegedly with a with a pizza and a crash helmet on, and then you know would uh, would shoot you. Would shoot you. Oh yeah. That's what he was there for. Not just a simple robbery then. He was a oh, shooting, no, no, he was no. He was, pay, he was there to do that. That's yeah. it. There was a chap there from Salford who God knows how many streets he owned. I mean, it wasn't the most expensive properties, but there wasn't a family member that didn't own a house. Let's put it that way. It's not like one of the- Because he, uh, he was a major, major drug dealer. It's not like Noonan or Massey, one of those guys? No, 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 no. Uh, it wouldn't have been known to me because it wasn't my world, but as I was in the system, he was clearly known. He he was he was clearly not. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of who else there was. Um, no, it would probably would have been they were probably the my uh, Charlie and uh, Michael Sanders were probably the most the most prominent. There was there were, no, there was a couple of young kids they was in for murder. Uh, they were they were into their kung fu. Yeah. I had a drink on home one night and got carried away and ended up murdering. You know, got murdered. So if Charlie's like. accepted you, then does that? put you in the good graces of the rest of the prisoners? Not necessarily, because you never met them. You never, you ne you ne you would, it was just you on that wing. You didn't go, and you didn't, if you had a visit, for example, it was a cut A visit. So initially, that was behind a screen. Um, so you're on your own behind the screen. You can't yeah. see any other people with other and, visitors. No, and before you go, before you go, you go into a room and you have to, you have to take everything off in front of the officers and put on a separate set of clothing. And then you go into a very small space and there's two two desks. Bigger pardon, there's three desks. Uh, one of those desks is two officers sit at the desk and you, you want to hope that somebody else has got a visit so you can talk privately. But that never happened. It was always just... Um, when I got open visits... That was just me and my wife. The first visit was behind a screen and my wife came along with my two daughters and I said, never again, never again, because 
you can't cuddle them, you can't, you know, you can't show any real emotion. And to be honest, it was probably best I was on KA because I was like a raging bull. And if if I'd have been on an ordinary wing and someone had upset me, I'd dread the thing what I'd have done. Uh, because I've never felt anger like it. Just never. Um so I said, don't ever bring them again until I, um, until I, and that took quite a while to get open visits as well. But as I, as I said, there's no privacy. There's no, it, you feel like you're in a soap opera because the screws is literally just sitting there watching you. Uh, um, and it was a very, very difficult first visit. Very difficult. Um, because I did say to my wife, um, I'm glad I've been caught. And she said, you know, what do you mean? You know, how can you want to get caught? And I said, so where did you think this was leading? You know, where did you think this was going to end? You know, you can't, you can't adopt a position of responsibility uh, and lead by example and have guns wrapped around you and not use them, you know. And um, she asked the, the question. I knew what was coming. And she said, are you telling me you would have, you know, you'd have shot someone? And I said, mm. And that's not something your wife wants to hear, is it? It's not really, you know, that the father of her children wants, but it had to be said. It had to be said. So would you credit getting arrested with saving your life in the out of the perspective that, A, you could have got shot dead, B, you could have shot someone and be serving a life sentence? And I've got no doubt. I've got no, I think I started to understand the pressure of people that lived in Northern Ireland. Because I know that if I'd have lived there, I would have been dead or I would have been serving a life sentence. I've got no shadow of doubt about that whatsoever. So, yeah, the time I got caught was, was right. It was right. For, it was certainly right for me. I'd, um, so it was, it was an unexpected relief. Yeah, if I'm honest, yeah. Uh, I suppose there was an element, well, there's nothing smart about getting caught. Um. Some of the, um, how can I put it, accolades might not be the right word, but when somebody shakes my hand or buys me a drink or pats me on the back and says, oh, well done, mate, I'm a little bit like, well, yeah, I suppose if nothing else, it proves, you know, that I've, I meant what I said. But I still maintain there's nothing clever about getting caught. Uh, and unfortunately, the, the fellows who were clever enough not to get caught, they don't get they don't get any plaudits at all, do they? Because no one knows what they was up to. Um, so, yeah, it, it needed to come to an end. Yeah. Yeah. How long were you in the Supermax for before you got reduced? It was It was nine months. Nine months? Yeah, it was nine months. And then the first probably six months of that, there was, there was no association. You, there was no uh, luxuries, for want of a better way of putting it. Um, I refused to go on visits after a while because I said, I'm not going on a visit stinking. I want a shower. And that was no guarantee you were going to get a shower. Uh, and eventually I wrote to the, uh, the board of visitors and said, I'm not, I'm not sitting there in front of my family, you know, looking like I've just uh, come out of a cave. Uh, and the cells weren't much better than a cave, to be quite honest. Mm. Uh, and after six months, um, they did give us association. And at that time there was eight prisoners. And they said, we're going to take four of you out in the morning. Uh, in the morning. Uh, oh, so I beg your pardon. Four in the afternoon for two hours and four in the evening for two hours. And um, they put a pool table 
on the landing. And the first time I came out, there was a black fella standing at the, at, with talking to the screws. And uh, I said to the other three fellows that come out, I said, get back behind your door. And they said, what do you mean? I said, get back behind your door. I said, I'm not coming out here associating with a fucking rapist. This fella had raped a nun. He'd previously been done for rape. Uh, he'd done all sorts of... Uh, in America, they, obviously, they call it home invasions. You know, we, we would say burglaries. Um, because I'd made that stand, uh, within five, ten minutes, the the heavy mob came in, what they called a, the Mufti squad, came in, um, gave me a little bit of a pummeling um, and dragged me off to the governor uh, where he said, I won't have you telling my officers what they can and cannot do. And I said, I never told you officers what they can and can't do. I told them what I'm not going to do. And I'm not doing my time with a dirty rapist. Anyway, he said, I would remind you that everyone is innocent. He said, until they prove guilty. And I said, oh, really? I said, why is it he got six years of rape previously in Staffordshire prison uh, and, I, and only done three years of it? He obviously didn't know I knew that because I'd heard people on the working wing talking about it. Uh, so uh, I got away with that. And then the next day I came out at, at a different time um, to this other chap we'll call him politely. Uh, because there's no way I'd, uh, there's no way could I stood on that landing without that, without that Paul Q going around his head. No way. No way. So. Did it get to the point where you had to lay hands on anyone? Not in that prison. Not okay. in that. Pr not. Oh, initially, no. On the Cat A wing, uh, coming up to Christmas, I came very, very close to hitting a screw. What was the situation? Uh, at that time, I didn't have a wedding ring, and my wife said, "I want you to have a wedding ring. I want people to know that you've got somebody outside who cares about you, etc." Which I agree with her. But we were very dubious about having it sent in and me not actually receiving it. So I said to her, listen, when you come up on the visit just before Christmas, have it on your finger. And then when we're saying goodbye, just give it to me and I'll quickly sit on my finger. So I come off the visit, which I hastened to add was not much more than 20 minutes. So she was coming up. When I was on remand, she was coming up two, three times a week. And it was costing something like 70 odd pound on a train every time because mm. you had to get the early train and then cabs from New Street. Economically, she'd have run out of money. You know, I said to her, sell the car, obviously, and so on. I, you know, cash in some insurances and so on. Um, but when I was convicted, it was, what was it, once every two weeks, I think. So she came up, she slipped the ring on the finger, went through the process of going back in the room, stripping off. Um, I probably was a bit cheeky and said something to the screws, you get some sort of fucking thrill out of this or what? You know, trying to divert them away from me. Uh, put the other clothes and went in the cell and um, in a very, very short space of time, uh, the screws came to the door and uh, he said to me, uh, have, you got, have you got an item of jewellery? And I said, no. And he said, are you sure? I said, no, I haven't got any jewellery. 
And he went, show me your hand. I showed him my hand. Of course, it was on there by the end and so on. And he said, give me the ring. And I said, no. He said, I'm giving you a direct order, which can which can be, you know, they can charge you then. You see, I'll give you a direct order. And uh, I said, I'm telling you now, mate. I said, the governor, the Queen of England, are not getting that ring. I said, you're going to have to take my finger off. And I went back in the cell, same format. I came in with all the black, you know, the boiler suits on and all this and a little bit of knocking about and so on. Back in front of the governor, it's probably the PO, it's probably the senior PO actually for that for that wing. And uh, he said something to me like, it's coming up to Christmas, in the spirit of Christmas, and you've not really been any trouble to us. Um, they could have they could have charged my wife. She could have been in trouble. So I was being very careful what I said. And um, I said, okay, thank you very much. I appreciate that. But you've got to apologise to the officer concerned. <laughs> she couldn't imagine me doing it. I thought, you little snake, you know. And mainly because of the thought of my wife could get in trouble and or they could stop her visiting again, I just turned and said, I apologise to the officer concerned. That was about as conciliatory as I could get. <laughs> so I got to keep, I got to keep the ring. I got to keep the ring. Yeah. So are you still on sentence at this point? How long is it before you're going to get convicted of something? Uh, in between this, obviously, I've had contact with a barrister, and uh, somehow, God knows how, I'd convinced the character, uh, the um, the barrister to fight my case um, and, and and go not guilty. And um, I thought, no, I can't do that because I know I'm going to get, I know I'm going to get convicted. I know it. Um, and I had to say, look, it's all well and good for you, but if it goes wrong, it's 10 to 14 years. Uh, I'd rather take my chances, go guilty and throw myself at the, you know, at the mercy of the court, so to speak. Um. So eventually he did. He did. He did sort of comply with that. Um, That's similar to the US plea bargain system, then, where if you go to trial and lose, you get the super max aggravated sentence. To make an example. So I think I went to court in the I've been say Feb, February time in '94. Yeah, '94. What was that like getting sentenced? For me personally, it was pretty cut and dry. I mean, I, I knew I was looking at ten to fourteen. I was content. I had, didn't have any further charges. I think in my head, I was saying to myself, if I got eight, I'll take that on the chin. Um, Is it the case that you would have to do 50% of the sentence? Two thirds. Two thirds back then. Any, okay. I think anything over four at that time, I mean, it may well have changed, but mm -hmm. if you got up to four, you knew that you was going to do half. Okay. If you did any more than that, it, you did two thirds. I see. So then you relied on parole at halfway. Okay. So if you do nine, you're going to sit, you get nine, you're going to do six, got you. Yeah. 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 But possibly, as I say, but possibly, you know, four and a half if you've, if you've behaved yourself, so to speak. And what did the judge say then when it, when it was announced? Well, what happened just prior, we were in the holding cells and my code was, was going not guilty. And I agreed with him not to go, not go, because I think he had every chance of getting off because they couldn't prove what was in the bag or that he knew what was in the bag. 
and he went upstairs and um, he wasn't a screw as such. He was someone that worked in this holdings place. Came and opened up the flap of the door and he said to me, uh, oh, your mate's just pleaded guilty. You know, I went, all right, mate. Pull the other one. You know, he's not, he's not going to, he's not going, you know, not guilty. Uh, he's not going guilty. He said, no, he is. Anyway, he came back, had all tears in his eyes. I assume maybe his people had, in a car crash or something, the plane had come down or something from Belfast because he was in a real state. There's no doubt about it. And I said, uh, what's going on? And he said, uh, oh, I've pleaded guilty. So I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? Uh, and he said, because uh, I wanted him out of the way. I just wanted to be left to sentencing, you know. And he said, uh, oh, they've said if I plead guilty, it will be just for the possession of the weapons. Uh, not the other charge of providing persons unknown to endanger the lives of persons unknown, that they give him two to three years. So the fact he'd done nine months on remand, they actually double that up. Um, so we go up. It's Birmingham Crown Court. It's absolutely packed. Uh, there's the media. I believe there were students there, law students there as well. Um, and my barrister tried to convince the prosecutor, the judge, that uh, the weapons were being used purely for defensive reasons. Uh, what did, I laugh about it now, the press had absolutely slaughtered me. My three local papers had slaughtered me. I'd had a four-page pullout eventually in, in the Daily Mirror magazine. What kind of headlines were they? Oh, local caretaker, you know, gum runner and so on. And, you know, uh, some of it true, some of it completely made up. But where they try to demonize me and where they try to alienate me from my own people was they called it a ropey old hall of weapons. Amazingly, on the day in court, it suddenly turned into a deadly arsenal of weapons. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, the judge used terminology like, "Well, if you lay down with dogs, you got to, you know expect to pick up a few fleas, you know, and so on." And uh, he he made it perfectly clear that I was the main, you know, the main person involved. Uh, and that I was looking down both barrels. His term was both barrels of a double-figured sentence. So I thought, "Fuck me!" So we're going to start a ten here then. And it could go beyond. Um, a little bit more summing up. Uh, and now it's time to, to give the sentences. So I won't mention the fella's name. It's in the book. Uh, he says, blah, blah, blah. I sentence you to 30. And I thought, fuck. Oh, he was going to say 30 years. So much for the plea bargain. Um, and he, he went... Um, 30 months, two and a half years. So it quickly worked out. He'd done nine months on remand. He only had six months left to do. Uh, and then it got very, very tense It because it had been made clear that I was the bad boy. Mm. Uh, and he, he suddenly said, uh, uh, I sentence you to five years. So I stood there and this screw, sort of court screw, went to sort of, 
hold my arm, like, as if to say, look, what are you fucking doing? Like, because I was waiting for the next bit that was going to top it up to the double, you know, the double yeah. figure sentence. And I stood there and he went, no, he went, he's, he's, he gives you five years. And uh, I think his name was Judge uh, Rougier, his name was. And he got up and um, I looked in the gallery and some of my mates were sitting there and they started putting their thumbs up. <laughs> so I, instantly I put my thumb up. <laughs> and the radio mentioned it later on. He turned to his friends in the gallery and put his, put, put his thumb up. And I was in a daze. I was in an absolute <laughs> daze. You've never seen an happier bloke out of a doc who's just been convicted, you know, as opposed to somebody who got off. Because when you heard him say double barrel sentence, double digit sentence, you must have been on the verge of pissing your pants when you heard that. Well, the te- well, not, well not really. I would have been very, very disappointed because, yeah. I, because I, knew it, I knew it was t- a 10 to 14 year sentence. Yeah. Oh, I, what I should have said to you was the panic that overtook my... Uh, Cody, my co-defendant in the cell, was when he said to me, do you realise this carries a life sentence? And I said, yeah. He went, how long have you known that? I said, well, ever since I spoke to my barrister. And then I looked at him and I said to him, well, thank fuck you didn't know because I dread to think what you'd have said. Um, anyway, we go downstairs. His barrister passed me and his barrister said to me, you are a very lucky man. And at that point, I thought he must have told him everything. He must have confided everything for him to say that. So I had to play the part still and say, well, how'd you work that out, mate? I'm going to prison for five years. And he went to me, you know what I mean. So he clearly told him all the ins and outs. I went into a little room. I was allowed to speak to my barrister and his junior. And I said, what's happened? You know, what's, what's happened? What's just happened? And they both had a piece of paper and uh, the junior turned his bit of paper over. or Whichever way he ran it was, one of them turned a bit of paper over and it had 10 on it and the other one turned his bit of paper over and it had 12 on it. And I said, well, how comes I, how comes I got five? He said, what it was, he said, the reason why he mentioned the double-figure sentence because there were a lot of law students in the court. He said, now, he'd just given your code two and a half years, he gave you twice what he got. If he'd have given you any more than that, you'd have been able to appeal the sentence because mm. it, it would have been a disproportionate sentence. I was getting t- same offence, or okay, he dropped the other charge on, in his case, but he'd given me twice what he got. So now I'm glad he pleaded guilty because if he'd have pleaded not guilty and been found guilty, He'd have got a substantial sentence, and I'd have got an even more substantial sentence. So, call it fluke, call it what you will. It actually worked out quite well. So the judge blocked the risk of a retrial for appeal. Well, and and certainly an appeal of the sentencing. I see. Sentencing. Yeah. 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 So you're going back to your cell on a high now. Your wife must. Your family must be happy. She was quite flash about it because she'd said I'd get five years. Okay. And I thought she was crazy. <laughs> and, she, and she would quite, you know, openly confirm that. that I said, you're mad. Yeah. There's no way you're going to get five years for this. Uh, so, you know, I did start to believe in God a lot more than what I had um, before, if I'm honest. Do you think to an extent then, because the British Army were fighting the IRA, you perhaps had a bit of sympathy there and that could have affected the sentencing, even though it was highly no. in the media and stuff? No. No. No, no, no. Okay. 
No, I don't. I don't think that came into it at all. Okay. I think. I, I think this time is. If you, I'll give the legal system some credit, I think when it comes to something like that, they're straight down the line. You've you've broken yeah. the law, and that's it. There's no. There's no, uh, you know, sympathy in that respect. Okay. Um, what about then? Do you go to another prison now? No. What you do is you go you go onto the working wing. You get moved over. So now you're amongst, you know, the, the obviously the bulk of the prison population. Has it been all of the TV and stuff? Your case? Oh yes. So the first time we're now we're going to get this uh, evening association. He's in a panic. We're not going out, are we? You're you fucking banged up for nine months. I said, you're too right on going out on the wing. And even being a Londoner, you know, being a Cockney in a Birmingham prison, you, you're not kind of sure how that's going to be accepted, you know. So we come out, there's a set of stairs going downstairs, and there was probably about 30-odd maybe people sitting down in like an arc looking up at television. We come downstairs, 6 o'clock news, local news has come on. Uh, two men were convicted today, blah, 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 the circumstances and so on. So this fella sort of turns around, watches us come down the stairs, instantly recognises us off the telly. So I thought, you got to bluff this out, son. You just, you know, you got to let them know you're here. So I walked down the stairs. I said, all right, fellas. I said, you just seen us on the telly. I said, I'm Frank. It's Jim. Anyone got a problem with that? This black fella stood up. He was a monster. <laughs> he fucking got bigger and bigger as he got up. And I thought, you fucking big mouth. You big mouth. Anyway, all of a sudden he went, thank fuck with that he went. And now a cock. And he went, I'm sick of all these brummy cunts. <laughs> oh, I thought. Anyway, it turned out he was a Jim orderly. Him and his mate were in. Uh, they'd been caught with a warehouse full of... Um, Puff, basically, as he you know described it. Don't worry, son. He says I'll get you down to gym and all that, and you know, two three times, whatever you want, light and all that. I thought, oh, lovely, thank you very much. So it, it kind of worked. The bluff kind of worked, you know. Um, but within a couple of days, I was opposite somebody in a cell who was a cleaner. So he was the first out, last in, and he he used to stand outside his cell with his broom, like you know. Uh, there'd been an incident when I was on Cat A that uh, an IRA man had, had come in and he was talking to this particular fella. And they finished off one conversation. He said in Gaelic, Chucky Allah, which means our day will come. Well, I jumped up off my bed and the windows are all barred, there's no glass. Up. And I said, I'll give you fucking chalky alone when you get on that yard in the morning. Um, that morning, because I know I had not clapped eyes on him yet. He'd not been on the yard yet. He'd literally just come in. And the next morning, one of the screws came. And I'll never forget his name, uh, Woodward. And he'd been in the army and he boxed for the army. And he came in and he went to me, you listen to me, he said. You're in enough trouble, he said, as it is. I've met your wife. I've met your children and they want you home. He said, don't make it any worse for yourself. He said, I'm a born and bred bummy. Uh, brummy. He said, I fucking hate him. He went, you let me take care of him. And I went, fair enough. Thanks very much. Went down on the cat uh, yard that morning. He wasn't there. A few days later, he went to Steel Ass Lane because he was due up for a hearing. 
bow hearing or something. Somebody else who's been on the day uh, uh, said that they went in the cell, holding cell he was in afterwards and had it scratched all over the wall IRA and a particular brigade of the IRA life. You know. um, so when I came out of my cell the first couple of days, this fella was always giving me daggers as I, you know, and I thought I'm not having this. Anyway, um, I asked if I could put in an application to see the governor. Didn't want to see the governor at all. I just wanted to get out of the cell early in the morning to catch him as he come out of his cell. And as he as he came out of the cell, he stood he, he stood there and then he went to go back and I ran in and I slammed the door. Well, I just pushed it. I didn't actually slam it. It would have been locked in, but I just pulled the door over. And I basically said to him, you look at me one more time. I said, no, I'll shove that straight up your ass. I said, no, I know there's some people who probably fucking play with the pay for the pleasure of that. I said, but you ain't going to enjoy it. Never looked at me again. Never looked at me again. Again, it was just a case of you've got to set the boundaries here because this isn't my hometown. I don't know who knows who. Uh, and apparently he did come from quite a, an extensive Irish Republican supporting family. So I thought I need to get in. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be the victim first. You know, if there's going to be a victim, it's going to be him. But we settled in. We, you know, we 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 graduated. We've, we've been in the same cell together. We settled in. We were told we could now go to the canteen. We could use the gym. Um, we were told we could now work and earn some money. They took us to the uh, textile room. Horrified when I saw these uh, sewing machines. And uh, nice chap in there, you know, another ex-army fellow. And he says, oh, you know, don't worry. He said, I'll, I'll show you how to thread the bobbin and whatever. And I just called him out. I said, listen, mate. I said, fucking take me back to the cell. I said, this is not my game. I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> and he went, oh, well, you know. Anyway, he took me in his office. And he, he, he basically told me he lost friends on uh, HMS Sheffield during the um, – you know, the, the Falklands War. And he said, look, you know, don't do that. Don't go getting yourself, you know, locked up all day. He said, it doesn't look good on your report. He said, I know what you're in for. He said, uh, and he was sympathetic. He said, I'll find you something else. And in all fairness to him, he did. And he put us onto a big table where there was big sheets of PVC. And uh, you basically put a stencil on it. One of you would draw around it and the other one would have a gauntlet on and you'd you cut around it. And you was making um, messenger uh, purses or wallets for the uh, MOD, for the Ministry of Defence. And we actually got twice the money that the fellows on the sewing machines were getting, unless they did extra work, they could earn they could earn extra money. So it was quite a prestigious thing to, to eat up for us, really, to be honest. It's good to hear because I think on my channel, I've leaned towards more the dark side of what, uh, the guards have done but all staff are not go, um, completely like robocop redneck they just want to beat the shit out of prisoners there are some good staff as well just to fur. yeah i mean yeah you you know you get some right sods without a doubt but, yeah. uh, there was a period when we was on cat a where the system messed up big time from a security point of view they had a very high profile case that was going to be heard in birmingham and they needed to bring uh the defendants to Winston Green's cat a wing. So one day they just 
they call it ghosting out. You don't get told what's happening. They literally just come and get you and they ghost you off to another prison. You don't know how long you're going to be there for. But the same Category A rules would apply. Well, we went to Bullingdon in Oxfordshire and the woman uh, governor, she was from Northern Ireland and she asked to see me. And she said to me, are you going to cause me any problems? I said, no, not at all. She even offered me a cigarette. And I said, oh, I don't smoke. Anyway, she said, I'll do my best and try and get you access to the gym. And I thought, you can't do that because we're cat A. You can't. Um, and for, the, I think, the five weeks we were there, I had open visits with everybody else, which meant everybody that was connected with me had the opportunity to come speak to me and I could send messages out. Um, I got to use the gym. I got to use the canteen. I got to go to the church. They made a major balls up. And when the when Special Branch found out, they went mad because it had given me five weeks. And this is prior to the sentencing. Wow. So they weren't best pleased. <laughs> um, while while I was on the working wing, uh, that did relieve a lot of the tension. I did fall out with Mark Hody. I found him to be really selfish. He had six months to do. There were young fellas in there that were getting 10 years in a really bad way. And um, he was moaning about his six months. Oh, there's nothing worse than like a life of his, some short time. And I oh. said, for fuck's sake, you've got six months. These young kids here doing 10 years. You can't do that. Um, one day I asked to look at his newspaper and he told me to buy my own fucking paper. And I, I thought, I won't say nothing. And after we'd been to the workshop that day, I said to the screw, get me a single cell. And he said, what? So get me a single. I said, I can't have it around him. And anyway, in a couple of days, he was begging me because I still had to work with him. So I did go back in there. And then he got a move the last few weeks up north somewhere. And uh, by this time, I was doing a little trade in watches. You either get people who the last thing they want to know is what the time is in prison, <laughs> really. But then you've always got those who do want to know the time. So I was doing a little trade up with these watches. So on the day he moved, I gave him this nice watch and his words were something like, oh, every time I look at this watch, I'll think of you. I'll tell you what, the next day he must have gone around the nearest fucking pawn shop and pawned it because I never heard from him again. <laughs> so, so much for sentiment, you know, but I was glad he was gone because I did feel he was a bit of a weight ram. I always felt like I was looking after him. I always felt like he's going to get himself in trouble, which in turn is going to get me in trouble. You know, so I was quite pleased he moved on. Did he get on the drugs in there? No, nothing. Oh. He, he wouldn't, and I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't. No. yeah. No. So jugging, what's that about? Jugging, what does that mean? And what was? Ah, uh, well, when I we got moved, I got I spent one night in Wandsworth. Uh, my one distant misdemeanor when I got there is in the in anyone who's been in Wandsworth for tell there's a big star in the middle of the floor. This is where Julian Assange is right now. And you have it? to walk round it in apparently I don't know if it's clockwise or anti-clockwise. <laughs> whichever way it was, I went the wrong way and this screw screamed at me like, you know, what do you think you're doing? You know, well, I said, I'm fucking never been here before, have I? But that was only one night. That was that was basically transit to to uh, 
HMP swell side, which was a B cat, uh, and that's on the Isle of Sheppey, a very modern prison, good facilities, uh, big open field. Uh, in fact, when I got there, I couldn't believe I was allowed out on this big patch of grass. You know, it was like, wow, <laughs> people were sunbathing. You know, it was like, um, but yeah, that came about because <laughs> the first couple of days I got there, uh, a couple of Turkish fellas come up to me, very interested about access to guns or wasn't sure they wanted them or they were going to sell them to me or something. I don't know who they were. I, I never met them before. Uh, and I said, listen, I don't want this conversation. You know, I don't even know you. Um, they had a bit of sway in the prison. There was quite a, quite a large Turkish population at the time. Um, there wasn't gangs as such, but people would tend to be whatever, what they call a, a landing was a spur. They called it a spur. So, yeah, people did form alliances on there, I suppose, depending on what you was into. Um, I w was quite lucky because I didn't smoke. So you was allowed to have two and a half ounces of uh, Old Holborn, um, which was five packs, basically. And there's a point in the pack where you'd cut down the middle, you'd take the end off, and then you'd seal it with that. And the rule was double bubble. If you give somebody, oh, man, say so got to give you an ounce back. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to do that because if they're not just an ordinary smoker, then they're smoking their puff. That's the last thing they do at night is they want their bit of puff. So they tend to either give you phone cards. Um, in turn, phone cards create money. Uh, people need money to pass out on their visits to pay for the drugs. So you can't go wrong. Because you've got the you've got the tobacco, you've got the phone cards, you've got the cash. It got to the stage where I was selling uh, budgie cages. Um, what the term then for these big music systems? If you remember rightly, they used to call them a box. You know, boombox. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the people who were heavily on the drugs would. Ask for a new one of these, which could be 150, 200 pounds at the time, which is a lot of money. And you knew that, that they were going to come in and sell it straight away. So I would try and be, I know people would give them 10 pounds for it or 20 pounds for it. So I would say, I'll, I'll give you 30 pounds for it or I'll give you 40 pounds for it. The next person that came in and didn't have a music system, I constantly sold it to them for 60 pounds because they were getting a nice bit of kit, very cheap. Um, and it, it went on from there. It could be, it was jewellery. I, I mean, the chain I'm still wearing today is from prison. Wow. Uh, if, it was my, if it was my daughter's birthdays, it was jewellery, you know. And that's the wedding ring that was smuggled in. This isn't funny because I've got too fat to get oh. another one. <laughs> that's actually from Rhodes. <laughs> I've still got the ring though. Um, and, yeah, so I sort of became the person to go to. That's your hustle. Yeah, it, it's as I say, uh, trainers. You know, they're all kind of things that you that you sort of got hold of. Um, but there's always someone wants to steal off you. There's always somebody who wants so ups, you know, up, upset upset the apple cart. And uh, on a particular day, I 
I, I had a jug. I'd gone to um, a water container. I'd filled it up, gone back. And, and that's, nine out of ten people do that because that's, that's their tea or coffee for the evening. And uh, just before I went to push the door over, these two black guys come along and they made it perfectly clear that they was there to rob me. This is, you've got a jug of hot water. Yeah. And I thought, fucking, I ain't having that. And I just threw it over him. Uh, Dave ran off screaming, the screws come down, and there's about that much left in the bottom of the thing. He said, what's that? I said, a fucking trip cover. It's only gone all over him. And he just went, <laughs> you know. And, and I kind of learned from that moment that there's people that are going around carrying, um, you know, manufactured knives and, you know, and so on and mm-hmm. different other tools. And I thought, oh, fucking water. Like, it's not illegal, is it? It's not illegal. You can have it in your cell. You can walk around all day with it. It's like Dave Corn. He said, only carry the weapon you'll do the sentence for. Hot water? <laughs> not legal? I'm not sure it was. I'm not <laughs> sure there was a charge for that. And I, you know, I know you might have harmed somebody, but you weren't going to get done for possession of water. Um, and that, it's not something I like talking about because, because when I mentioned it in the book, when I've mentioned it in the book, my wife's obviously read the book. And there's, you know, there's a side of you, you don't really want your wife. My daughters have still never read it. Um, so I've, I've left a lot out. I've left a lot out. But I did start to get a reputation with the old hot water. And uh, an old blackboard that I used to go to church with eventually said, Frankie, said, you carry on like this. He said, they're going to call you Frank the Baptist. <laughs> And it kind of stuck. <laughs> and funny enough, when I went on my 60th um, uh, birthday to, to Benidorm, a, a mate actually done me a T-shirt with Frank the Baptist <laughs> with my picture in a, in a striped shirt <laughs> and, a, and I had a budgie on me. I had a budgie on the, my shoulder because I had three budgies at the time. <laughs> oh, I was dealing in, I was dealing in budgie cages. And um, uh, yes, yeah, so that was quite funny. And it had my prison number underneath, obviously, as well. So yeah, that's how that, that that's how that came about. But it's not something I sought out. It wasn't something I wanted to particularly do, but it made the point. It made the point. With know. that reputation as Frank the Baptist, did people still try to test you? I nearly got embroiled in what was an almost not a race war, but um, but a, certainly a battle, uh, and a battle that I don't think the white fellas would have won. Quite frankly, how did that come about? Uh, because a little a little firm came in, a little team came in from West London. They f- they thought they was the business. They were white. Oblate. They were white fellas, yeah. and um, they were putting themselves about, quite frankly. Uh, and then they wanted everyone else to fight their battles. Mm. So of course they 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 kind of they kind of put it that it's the blacks bullying the whites when we get on the sports field. We're going to have it out with them. And you thought. That's not quite the true story, is it? That's not really at all, is it? And I thought, if you think I'm going out there and fighting your battles and I'm going to get a lump, another lump of bird on top of it, because it was drugs and I wasn't into drugs. Yeah, I guess it was going to be a drug So I thought, I'm not going to get involved yeah. in that situation. Um, and they would have come barely unstuck. And they, they eventually they got moved. It didn't happen. The thing didn't happen. Um, but other than that, it was... There was another another time somebody tried to collect. My mate had been with me. He got moved on, and this fella tried to imply that he owed him a debt. I saw you're a bit fucking late. He's gone, isn't he? 
And he said, uh, no, 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 you, you're, you're going to pay us down. I said, I've got fucking news for you, I'm not. And um, he, came, he, he threatened to come back with another fella uh, and do me. I thought, fair enough. So that evening, people started to come to me for their tobacco and so on and all that. I said, sorry, fellas, the shop's shut. And they said, what do you mean? I said, the shop's shut. And then someone would come to phone calls and say, no, no, shop shut. And word got round. Oh, what's the matter with Frank? Like, you know. And I said, um, I'm not having people rob me. So you better go and sort it out. So they did. And they went and, <laughs> and, they went and so they went and sorted the two fellas out. Shop was open again, wasn't it? Everyone, everyone was happy. So I think I learned that psychology was sometimes better than just out and out violence. Because there was the potential there every day. Quite frankly, you could have you could have had it every day, um, but that's the way I played it. I, I thought, no, try and avoid that. I had a fella that owed me tobacco. He, we were going down to the canteen on the Saturday morning, and I said to him, "By the way, it's about time you pay." It doesn't have to be tobacco; it can be phone cards. Oh fuck up! He said, "I'm sick of hearing you fucking keep chasing me and all that." I said, "Well, we'll have it your way." So we'll have it your way. And um, all week, people were talking about an interwing football match. I remember this kid's name, Billy. According to him, he was the best footballer in South London. And he got his girlfriend to bring his football boots in. So when I came back up from the canteen, I am to walk past his cell. And sitting under the bed is his, are his football boots. So I nicked one of them. Not both of them, one of them. So he comes up, we get banged up lunchtime, I open that. He's screaming, he can't find this other boat. He can't play now, can he? He's gutted. He's told everyone in the prison he's the best footballer. He can't play, can he? So I've done it. Basically, I've done his nothing, haven't I? So anyway, we get we get uh, we come back in the afternoon off the association. We've watched the football match, have you a bit of tea, then open you up for the last two hours. So he comes along to Marcel. He weighs me and he's paid me up what he owes me. Goes back to his cell. I said, nothing. Anyway, about 10 minutes before you're supposed to bang up, I walked along, pushed his door, threw his boot. I said, I ain't have your fucking boot back now. I pulled the door, locked him in. He couldn't even come out and have a go at me. He couldn't do nothing. Anyway, the next morning, luckily I'd already been out and I'd filled the jug up. Uh, for a morning cup of tea, and uh, oh, he's come along the he's come along the spur. He's broken a chair in his in his cell, and he's got the leg of the chair, and he's uh, he's going to come and do me with this thing. So I just fucking stepped out. I went, it's up to you, Bill. Right, you know, up to you. And uh, he's all he's all mouth, and you know, he didn't want to be baptized. Few ups, no, he wasn't a religious man, no, not at all. <laughs> and. Um, so yeah, there were better ways of there were there were better ways of dealing it dealing with it. Yeah, it's unusual because from speaking to you and reading your book, it sounds to me like you've got this tactical mentality. Mm. You had a tactical mentality before prison when you were in that situation as a paramilitary, and now you're using your intelligence. It's almost like you've not dropped your guard. You're still going in there. There's still a battle going. Like anything could happen. Mm. You're still in that mode. How would you describe, yeah. like, versus your psychology now, what was your psychology like then in the prison? Um, 
in some ways, because I was forced into it, I was stronger there. I was, I'm complacent now and lazy, but then you can't afford to be, you can't, you can't afford to be in that, you know, in that sense of mind. And, um, I very quickly decided that one, no harm was going to come to me. I was very conscious that I didn't want to hurt someone to the degree where I got further charges. I certainly didn't want to kill someone and never come out of prison. That's for sure. I didn't want to die in prison either. I can't think of it. Um, so I certainly made it that if you cross me, you're in trouble. Why don't you just get on with me and we'll all be happy. So for example, uh, there was a young kid who was quite a good boxer. So he would put the pads on and I would spar with him. And we would, I would say to somebody, cause you could cook. You could cook in the prison. And people that were less off, you know, less well off, I'd say, here's a couple of phone cards, here's our, you know, uh, old Oban, go and cook us a meal. So it might be tuna, pasta, noodles, whatever. But have a dinner yourself. Always have a dinner yourself. Because some of them couldn't afford to eat. Um, so people take to you then. People... You, People start to rely on you. Um, I had some very, very tough people in that place, uh, top of the range villains. Couldn't write a letter. Couldn't write to their wives or their families. Um, and I started to do the listening uh, course where you're not so much a counsellor, but you go and you listen to people. You can't give advice, but you can encourage them to open up and talk. So you'd be in your cell and you'd get called out. You might even be in a class and you'd get called out and say, look, someone's looking for a, for a listener. Uh, and I saw some really tough men bawling their eyes out. There's no way they'd have wanted other people to see them in that state. Um, and, and really, really quite sad, really quite sad because they were proper faces, you know. Um, I did come unstuck with one. Uh, this fella came in. And I'm afraid he had nonce written all over him. Mm. I could see it. Just, you sensed it, the way he was dressed a mm. lot. And what did it for me was, he said he'd been, he'd come from another prison and he, he I don't know if he'd done a burglary or something. And he just thought, you wouldn't be in this prison. You mm. just wouldn't be in here, mate. And what did it, what gave the game away was I said, are you thinking of doing any courses? And he said, yes, I'm thinking of taking a theology course. And I thought, you bastard. So you fucking basically want to hide behind God. Mm. Anyway, that evening he came up to the level that I was on and uh, he was asking people for me, like we were friends. And, excuse me, people, some of them went, who the fuck's that? Like, I, said, I don't know the geezer, I just don't know him. Um, anyway, I went down to see the, the screws. I went down to their office and I said, listen, I said, this geezer's a wrong one. You've got to get him off of here. And one of the screws said to me, he said, Frank, he said, I wouldn't even tell you, he said, what he's done. Ooh. He said to both boys, anger. I said, that's it. You fucking. Oh. By the time I'd, I said, I'd do my fucking self. And by the time I'd left that office and gone back, they had him down the block, ready to shift him out the next, ready to shift him out the next day. Um, but again, the listening side of it, 
you, you people needed you. People did need you. So in a sense, it was forming a bit of a protective barrier around me. I also got a lot of pleasure out of doing it, in all fairness. How was that adjustment? Because you went from channeling your energy into something that could have ended up with people getting killed to now channeling your energy into something that is potentially saving lives. I think some of the times things that's got me in trouble is caring too much and more to the point having to prove it. I'm, I'm not very tolerant of um, barstool preachers, people who sit at bars and disagree with something and do fuck all about it. And there's people I've known for 40 odd years mm. who've, who are still moaning about, you know, political situations, shall we say, and have done nothing about it. And I'll just get, you know, it's, that's, that's just not me. Um, so if I see somebody in trouble, I feel inclined, to, if I can, I feel inclined to help them. Um, there was a chap in my... Um, I didn't have a particularly good uh, education. Um, that was more to do with family circumstances, feeling the need to leave school as soon as possible. In fact, I didn't even know I'd left school. Um, to get out to work, earn money, so that I could look after myself, so to speak. Always regretted it. Here was my chance to join an English class and take some, you know, some degree of, um, of, of, of uh, O-levels or A-levels. Uh, I had a very good teacher. I used to enjoy the creative writing side of things. She actually took me up from a level. She skipped it and said, no, let's bypass that. Let's go up to the next level. Um, in that class was a chap who at one time was Britain's Most Wanted. I think he was in about his 30s. And he was quite a bright fella. Can you say his name or? I can't even remember his okay. name. I'm actually ashamed to say I've forgotten his name, even his first name. And he was in the cell opposite me. And we got on really well. Because I think we had a, we kind of shared a bit about the English, you know, it was poetry. There was a, we, we had a, sort of a bit of a thing going on there. And one day he, I was asked to go and listen to somebody, and it was him. And he had uh, hepatitis. Not sure to which degree it was. He was convinced he now couldn't kiss his wife, couldn't kiss his children, etc. So in a couple of days, um, I, I come out of my cell, say, in the morning. He's not there. He's downstairs on suicide watch. Um, they bring him back lunchtime, and then they just before lunchtime, and then they go to take him off again, and he's screaming. We're all banged up now. There's been an emergency, so we're not in our classes. And he's he's screaming out my name, Frank, Frank, they're trying to kill me. Now, I'm behind a locked door. So I jump up, I'm banging the door. What the fuck's going on? To let them know that I'm, listening, you know, that I'm aware of what's going on. He gets taken back downstairs, and now he's on 10, 15-minute suicide watch. Unbeknown to me, he's been brought up at another, a later stage. We get opened up in the afternoon, and my door uh, was always opened for. Oh no, beg your pardon. His door was always open first, and the bloke used to do it crisscross him, me, and then work his way down. 
I looked at the time and I thought, they're a bit slow in opening this up here today. So I banged on the door. I said, what's happening, Gav? What's happening? And he went, oh, um, oh, he said, hold on, hold on. There's been a bit of an incident. They've opened the door. He's hung himself. <sighs> now, if they'd have opened me him and then opened me first, I'd have walked straight in and found him. Now, that haunted me because they then said to me, um, we're going to give everyone counselling. Do you want counselling? And I said, no, no, I'm, all, I'm okay. But that night I couldn't sleep because all I could hear in my head was Frank, Frank, help me, help me. Anyway, there was a big inquiry. They got the police in and so on. And um, I had to make a statement, obviously. And uh, it was nice because when it had all finished, his, his family wrote to me and actually said thanks for you know befriending him and, mm. and so on. So that was that was nice. But um, but that was that was a, that was a very very horrible time. I must admit. And in hindsight, I probably should have spoken to somebody, if I'm honest. You, so know. you mentioned before then there were some big-time gangsters in there mm. and they were really breaking down and sobbing. When they were speaking to you, what kinds of issues were upsetting them? Was it family stuff? Yeah, it was all family. It was mainly being able to communicate with their families mm. because they had this tough image. Um, and... It'd be Valentine's Day. You know, Valentine's Day was coming. Frank, could you write me a poem? You thought, you know, this old nut here is asking me to write him a slushy poem to give to his wife. But it's something they kept to themselves. It wasn't something they didn't run around as, you know, around a wing going, oh, look what Frank's wrote for me. It was something they very much wanted to keep private. So, uh, oh, I've seen, uh, you know, I've seen people, I've learned a lot about people. I mean, I've clearly, you know, I've learned a lot about myself. I remember writing to, um, responding to a letter from my sister-in-law. And I said, if nothing else, you find out what sort of man you are. You know, you, you, def you definitely discover that. Um, and anybody going in prison, you know, any, any young person going, and I'd say, whatever you do, have a game plan. You know, plan it out. Obviously, with a view to getting out as quick as you can, get yourself some education. Try and stay away from the drug. I mean, I didn't know what drugs really were, to you know, if I'm honest. And the violence that I saw over drugs was people. I, look, when someone said, oh, someone's getting a bag of gear, I thought it meant a two-pound bag of sugar. I didn't know it was a, a fag paper with a bit of dust in it, which sometimes was brick dust. You know, I, I just had no concept of that. I know what a bit of puff was. Um, you know, you'd have blokes who take people's money, go on a visit, um, especially if it was heroin, and they'd, they'd go on a visit. They've promised everybody that when they come back, they're going to have this parcel ready for them. Come back, lock themselves in their cell and do it all themselves. So the first time you get opened up, there's this queue outside this person's door. And they want to kill him. And I remember this scouse bloke going down into the kitchen and he getting some uh, vegetable oil or corn or whatever it was, you know, putting paper under the door, pouring the oil underneath it, setting light to it to try and smoke the geezer out. You know, <laughs> you know, it was, and, then, and people were constantly putting themselves down the block, you know, putting themselves on the numbers um, to get to get away from people. Were you aware of anyone got murdered over that kind of stuff? No, thankfully, the worst. What I would class, and I see people getting stabbed. That wasn't that wasn't particularly shocking, um, but the worst thing I ever heard, which freaks you out even more because there's nothing you can do about it, was two, um, two Kurdish militants 
terrorists, if you want to call them that, um, came into the prison. And what they'd done is they'd gone to place a bomb on the windowsill. I think it was a Turk. It was either a Turkish travel agent or an information centre or something. But I think they put it on the wrong window. I think it was to do with a bank. Anyway, they'd come in. They'd both been convicted and they'd come into the prison. And some of the Turks had put a price on them. And one of them went down to the kitchen to prepare some food. And he bent down to take something out of the oven. And already on the hot plate was a pan of hot fat. And this bloke walked up and poured it all down the back of his head and all down his back. The screams were unbelievable. If you've heard an animal in pain, it was... It went all around, all through the prison. And uh, the old pine liquor there, the vicar there, Roger Green, Reverend Roger Green, he was called down to the uh, to the medical area and they had him in a bath and they were literally trying to, uh, they, well, I'm not sure what it was, it's like tin foil over him to try mm. and keep the flesh attached to him. Mm. Mm. Um, we all knew who did it we all knew who did it and it was for some paltry amount of money, drugs, whatever it was and I thought I'm talking from a point of view I'd have shot someone but I couldn't understand how someone could pull a boy not someone you didn't know not someone you had a particular grudge against not for your political views just because someone paid you to go and pour boiling not fat, I just could not get my head around that. Couldn't get it. Um, eventually, and I'm pleased to say I was one of them, some more decent people decided he's got to get done, this fella. We can't have that. Can't have him running around like that because he could do it to you, well, you know. Um, eventually, one of the Turks themselves grasped him up mm. so that he got moved out mm. because he couldn't do them any harm then because obviously the police were called him. Did the prisoners not view that as snitching though and then attack him? Not particularly, no. Mm. No, not particularly. I think everyone was just pleased to see this fella Get gone. Yeah. Look, they, look, they started the problem. The Turkish fellas started the problem. The Turkish fellas dealt with the problem in, yeah. that, in, in that sense. They got they they got him out of prison. Yeah, you know? but but that was an horrible moment. Yeah, yeah. You said earlier, you know, prison. You go in there. It's like there's an X-ray on you, isn't it? You all your uh, idiosyncrasies, weaknesses are exposed, and you, you're like analyzing yourself and your mm. thoughts and what your life mm. and everything that you've done. What was the biggest thing you learned about yourself? Um, probably I was more resilient than what I thought I was. Um, I said to you earlier that I'd always had this feeling if I was watching a film that involved somebody being in prison or going to prison or a documentary or a drama, I always had that feeling I was going to land up in prison one day. And it wasn't I was looking at it from a point of view of what I was currently doing. It was long before that, long before that. I always had this feeling and I'd question, oh, if that was me, I wouldn't do this, or that, you know, or I, I would do that, or whatever, you know. 
But I always had that feeling. So I wouldn't say I was prepared for it because I definitely, definitely could not, especially that cat A bit. There's no way I could have been prepared for that. Um, but I know I wasn't stupid. I knew I'd been in situations before I'd used my wits. Um, and I think it was just a case of, of, of trying to do it. I did, uh, I nearly come unstuck big time. Uh, a very good f- friend of mine, Terry, um, had been caught with guns in a car up in Scotland. Uh, and I did ask him prior to today, if I, I've not mentioned his surname. Um, one day I was told he'd been transferred down to our prison. He could have gone to a lower category of prison, but he wanted to see me. He wanted to come and see me. And we we actually did 10 months together, which was which was nice because I felt like I had an ally, a proper ally, you know, proper ally then. Um, I was in industry. I was, I'd left the English class, unfortunately, because I was offered to work in the industrial cleaning class. Um, which I could have turned into a business afterwards, more than the English. So I took the courses, passed all the courses. Uh, also took an assessor's course, and I'll say that after that, I could teach the other the other cons, and I was getting paid extra and getting more visits. So that worked out really well for me. Um, Terry came in. Terry went in the English class, and on one particular occasion, this black kid was driving him nuts. So he kind of turned it against me. Listen, mate, I don't have it with black geezers or white. And the black geezer obviously told loads of other black geezers. So they very much went looking for Terry. I said to Terry, listen, whatever happens to you, I've got your back. He would say to me, listen, you need to get out. You need to get your parole. You need to get back to you know, your missus and kids and so on. We were told... Specifically, we were getting done the next morning. We were going to get done the next morning. And we knew where we were going to get done. We knew it was going to get done on the on the spiral staircase that went down to the workshops. So it was the only place that wasn't cameraed up. So we walked along and you had sort of about sort of these four corridors that led to this one big central concourse. Terry was still trying to convince me about that stage. You know, not to go down them stairs. I said, so I'd never better look you in the face again, mate. And we walked along, we got to the concourse, and there must have been 20 other of these fellas. And you knew one, at least one was going to have a tool on him. So even if they let you down the stairs, you knew he was going to get it in the back. And if I never believed in God before, I certainly did afterwards. Because off of another spur was a good mate of mine, Colin, who was a proper cat a villain and worked for a probably the, the most well-known family in the UK at the time. You're allowed to say which one that is. Uh, the Adamses. He was working oh, for the Adamses. And the fellow with him was a fellow I used to run around the field with, and he was he was a boxing trainer, and he was somebody he was doing 18 years. He was he was a rubber arm rubber. So I'd got to know him quite well, and. They knew each other from from the past. They didn't know Terry, but Colin had known me. Colin was a, a, a very good friend of mine's uncle. So as we came off of our sperm, was confronted. It felt like sang out of Zulu. You know, we was we weren't going to win. I mean, you know, it was a totally different script. Um, 
And all of a sudden, you heard, Frankie, how's he came, my old son? And they looked and saw him and the, the other fella. Well, some of them used to do boxing with them in the gym. So you could see them visibly confused. Hold on. Here comes he knows them. They've come up, shook hands. I've introduced them to Terry. Four of us walked off. Got to the stairs. It was like the Red Sea. Parted like that. Went down it. Nothing happened. Wow. Nothing happened. Different time. They hadn't walked up with that spur. There was no way we could have won. There was no good saying, oh, we'll come back at them afterwards because we'd have probably been downstairs in, in the hospital, <laughs> you know. Um, so that was tense, yeah. That was, but again, again, it was like character forming because it was one of them situations. You couldn't plan for it. Um, you was forced to deal with it. What else would I have done? Stayed in my cell. Shut the, kept the door shut. Been scared to come out for, you know, for the next God knows how many months. You just you just couldn't let that happen. You just couldn't let it happen. Um, so yeah, I've learned a lot of things. I, I learned a lot of things about myself. So how um, different were you from the person who went in to the person who came out? <laughs> I'd love to see how some of my mates had answered that. <laughs> some of them would probably say, "Listen, you was nuts before you went in, um, <laughs> and you ain't changed much since you come out." Um, no, I'd say what I found difficult was when I came out was the obvious things like, uh, you know, you go and cross a road. You can't judge the speed of the cars because you haven't seen cars. You know, you don't know, you know, using a knife and fork, you know, a proper knife and fork, not a plastic one. Um, door handles. That's unusual. You're not used to, you're not used to door handles. Um, there was a, still a lot of anger. I found that, I didn't begrudge getting sentenced. I mean, I was pretty philosophical about that. I mean, some of the screws you say, you're all right. You know, you you don't seem bitter. You don't. I said, well, I was doing something illegal. I got caught. And that's it. What's the point of complaining about it? Plus, I'd had a good result. So it would have seemed a little bit, you know, selfish. <laughs> um, but I did notice, yeah, I did notice there was a lot of anger in me. And the, I came out on the Wednesday and on the Sunday, I went for a drink with my in-laws and my wife. We left the pub. We went to come through our local market. She went to go into a shop, and I stood outside. And the pub opposite, the door was slightly ajar. I could hear music playing. Someone was singing. And all of a sudden, I had heard, and when this war is over, and I went berserk ran across the road, kicked the door open and said, I'll give you when the fucking war's over. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, I was more horrified that there was people that I knew standing at the bar listening to this. Could you just explain what the significance of that song is? Well, it was basically a song about the IRA when, you know, when, when victory comes for them, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so, of course, I was still raw. You know, I'd only been out a few days, less than a week. I didn't expect to be confronted so soon by it on my own manner. But I certainly didn't expect people who I knew to be standing at that bar listening to this shit. Um, so the door's now wide open. And 
all of a sudden, a fellow I knew went to me, like nodded towards me. I turned around and my wife's on the other side of the road, just standing there shaking her head. <laughs> and I thought, fuck, I've not even been home a week yet. And I'm back to my old tricks. <laughs> I had to eat a lot of humble pie there. Yeah. Because she was right. I mean, she was 100%, you know, 100% right. Um, Before we get to um, post prison, then, you've given us a lot of exciting stories today, very well told. But prison, there's a lot of mundanity. How did you pass your time in general when all these other things weren't happening? I did a lot of writing. I did do a lot of writing. I've always liked, I always liked poetry. And what would happen was I'd sit in someone's cell and they would tell me something about themselves, uh, about a friend, might have been a code from a previous offence. that, And they tell me their funny little idiosyncrasies, something, something about them. And then when I then lunchtime or in the evening, I would write a witty little poem about it uh, because it, it ate up some of my time. I enjoyed doing it. And I knew they got a bit of pleasure the next day when I when – I, I've done a lot of reading, not as many books as what you read, by the way, but um, – yeah, I did quite a lot of reading. It got to the stage where I'd, I'd read um, something like Ro- uh, Robert Ludlum, for example, and I had to stop because I knew how it, I knew it was how it was going to end. <laughs> I kind of could anticipate because I got into the way that you know he was writing formula. Yeah, yeah. so I had to stop, you know, so I sort of changed a bit. Read a few books about sociology and you know that's that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, the test was the nine months in. Okay, that was the, that was very much feeling like an animal. You just, they, it was almost like they was trying to take your dignity away from you. So that to the degree when you got to prison, you was, you know, I bet there to the court, you know, you wasn't really up for it. He's probably glad to be there just to get out for the day, you know. Um, yeah, that was, that was difficult. And, and I say mainly the fact I'd left my family vulnerable. I found that very, very difficult. That, uh, that I'd put them in that position, you know. Um, uh, I did gain some qualifications, you know, so I can't that, – that got me employment at some stage when I did get out. What qualifications did you get? Uh, we started off with uh, MVQs. Uh, then I got my operative certificates from the uh, British Institute of Cleaning Science. Let's explain what they are, then, M- MVQs and operative certificates. <laughs> Well, basically, you get you're getting taught by uh, an instructor uh, how to clean certain areas, the machines, uh, what chemicals to use, whether it's stain removing, sealing floors, cleaning carpets. There's a whole there's a whole range, and they and they may have you know something like thirty uh, tasks just for that one that one thing, you know. And so there's a, there's a whole sequence of those, and then you'll get an MVQ to, to a certain level. Um, then there was proficiency certificates as well, so you was going up a, a, a bit again. And, and when I passed all, all that, he he said to me, the instructor, how do you feel about taking the um, assessor's certificate, which we then bring in an independent assessor, and you're then qualified to teach people. And I got a lot of pleasure out of that. I got a lot of pleasure. And I was firm. I said to people, listen, you ain't give me art man some fucking tobacco when you're getting through. You know what I mean? It, it don't work like that. <laughs> and um, 
And I still have fellas who get in touch with me on Facebook and say, "Well done, Frank." Really? Like, really yeah, yeah. It's nice. It's really, it's, it's really nice. It's really nice because I was fair. Yeah. Um, and I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it. I got extra visits for it. I got extra um, uh, money for doing it, and it set me up so that when I did come out, that I could set myself up in some way, or I could go and work for a company and at least have some sort of supervisory position. And I, I got a certificate eventually, and it basically made you a full member of the British Institute of Cleaning Science, so I can now put MBIC after my name, <laughs> which is quite funny because not so long ago I was in a gym and I had a real pest, a real pest. And he, uh, he obviously wanted to be you know, uh, my gym buddy, he was far fitter than me. I didn't like him at all. <laughs> quite a nice looking, quite, a bit like Adonis, you know. And I thought, fucking, don't need you wrapped around me, mate. I do not need you. Mm. And he started chatting away and he telling me about all these qualifications and and all of a sudden he said to me, he said, oh, yes, he said, uh, I've got these letters after my name. I went, oh, really? I said, I used to have numbers in front of mine. Fuck <laughs> off. Fuck <laughs> off. He didn't want to know. <laughs> he didn't want to know. So, yeah, so that, that came in handy. That did, that did come in handy. So you had your reading, your teaching. Mm. After Supermax, do you get a TV? No. No TV. No. It's like you a, certainly a, had better sanitation for a start. Yeah. And you could use your showers and so on. You could use the gym. You could go to the canteen. Um, yeah, so that was different. I mean, that was that was definitely more normality on the one end, but a bigger threat of violence every day. Yeah, so it's a trade up, isn't it? Yeah, it's a trade up. If you're in supermax, it's like it's brutal, but everyone's not around everyone, so they're not doing the fisticuffs. The thing I didn't like about, and you do spend twenty three more than twenty three hours a day banged up on Cat A, is they had all the nonces above us. Okay. And it's no fun listening to them swapping stories. Oh, no way. No, no, it's no fun at all. And you also realise that the reason Mm. that that screw who came in and said to me, let me deal with this other fella, is because they go upstairs every morning and they asked him what we were talking about the night before. Mm. Uh, There was one funny incident where this, um, this fella... He loved telling everybody that he hadn't murdered his girlfriend. He was married, but he had a girlfriend. He hadn't murdered his girlfriend. He accidentally knocked her down with his car. Mm. Apparently, mm. they'd come out of the Irish centre. They'd both had a good drink. She wanted him to leave his wife. They was arguing. He got in the car. She went to get they, they pulling each other about. She fell and went under the car, apparently. That's how he killed her. When he goes up in court and it's on the radio... What he never told us was he fucking reversed over her. <laughs> he never mentioned that bit. But it led to believe she sort of fell under the wheels, you know, and he ran over her. Oh, sorry, babe. Didn't mean to do that. <sighs> no, he reversed that and made sure he'd done the job properly. So that, you know, this, you know, it's dark humour, I grant you, but yeah. you kind of look, think, that kind of got me through that day. Yeah. You know what I mean? It kind of, well, Were there any other memorable, humorous, Situations. Oh, there were things like um, they when I was when I was on cat. You mustn't press that bell. You are not allowed to press that bell. And uh, what is the bell? It's just to get their attention for the guards in your cell. Yeah. There's a bell. Yeah, 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 yeah. You mustn't press that. When you're on remand, you can you can have um, 
you can have cigarettes, you can have something sitting. Well, I I thought, you know what, I don't really smoke, but I'm going to ask my wife to send me in some slim panatellas. Um, so she'd send in a pack. There would be, I think it was five in a pack. Then there'd, but there'd be six in a bigger pack, and she'd send them in. So, so. This was my one pleasure. I'd sit on the bed and think, you know, I'm out of the Italian job, and I, you know, the chap who ran the prison, you know, I can't think of his name now. And uh, so I'm, I'd sit on my bed and I'd have this little slim panatella. So one day I got it in my head, I don't know why, I got up and I pressed the bell and uh, I said to this screw, God, my feet are playing me. How many chance for a bowl of water? He went, what? I said, a bowl of water? I need a, for my feet, they're playing me out. And I couldn't believe it. He let me go out and get a bowl of water. So now I'm sitting there with my feet in the bowl. <laughs> and all of a sudden, <laughs> flap open up. Poanari, you're a flesh cockney cunt. <laughs> you know, so there was, you know, there was the, the fellow who done the raping. Uh, they let him, um, they let him clean the wing. Uh, he got taken out of the cells and take. He got eventually he got put upstairs with a nonsense. Did he get attacked then? No, no, you couldn't get him. Mm. Couldn't get him. That, that one day was the day we come out for that first hour of so. That was the only time we've had a chance to get him. Mm. So, but they let him clean the wing. So, I'm writing a letter to my wife one day. All I can hear outside the door is <laughs> kissing his teeth. He's driving me fucking nuts. I could feel myself going, and he kept kissing his teeth. Oh, got up, rang the bell. Screws are coming. Right? What's the matter? What's the matter? I said, "All right, Gav. I said you ain't got any free in one all, have you?" Remember the little cans you used to get with a three in one oil with a little spout on the top? Mm. She ain't got any three in one oil, have you? You mean, what do you want that for? I said, oh, I don't want it. I said, they can't let it eat it. <laughs> Fucking twat. So he went, oh, you're going to get yourself in trouble. <laughs> but he drove me mad. He tried me, kept doing this. Anyway, so yeah, again, that was that was a bit of relief, if you like. It was a bit of relief. You know? Yeah, that's the pressure out a bit. Yeah. yeah it's just, yeah. that was my entertainment for that day. <laughs> as much as it pissed me off originally, that was my bit of entertainment for the day. And as well as trading budgies, did you have any pets? I, well, I, no, I had three budgies. Three budgies. In Swellside, I had three budgies. I had Queenie, Boise, and Alfie. Uh, a bloke told me, Alfie was a, like, a beautiful grey colour, and someone said the, uh, there was a lifer, and the lifer had started to pull its feathers out because it said it was grassing him up to the screws. Mm. So I thought, I've got to go and rescue this bird, you know. Oh. So I went round, I'll give the geezer some tobacco. I said, listen, mate, I'll take the budgie off your hands, like, you know. Bought it back in. And what, what, what used to have a fluorescent tubes and then you'd have a cover. So I used to put a swing either end so that they could fly up and one to the other, like, you know. So they're up on, the, the two of them already up on the thing. So I'm sitting on the bed and I've got this one. And uh, I thought, I hope it can't, and I threw it. Like a dart, it landed in the sink. Couldn't fly it. <laughs> oh. Poor little fucker couldn't fly. Oh. So I had to. So what I used to do was lay on my bed, and I'd have um, a broomstick from the cupboard, put him on top of the cupboard, and I'd put an apple, a bit of apple, on my chest, and then he'd come down the pole uh, or the broomstick, and he'd get the apple, and then I used to make the distance a bit more, so he'd hop, and mm. then eventually he'd flutter and flutter, and eventually he could. It could fly. Wow. And some of the boys used to get their budgies out on the spur and let the budgies fly up and down. Well, I must have had the only asthmatic fucking budgie. 
because it could only go halfway and it'd go <laughs> and I thought about it I was I thought I'm probably killing it with a cigar smoke you know I'm probably it probably had a decent set of lungs until it, until it met me uh, and it's a shame because when I got moved eventually to the last prison um, you couldn't take your budgies so what did you do with them a mate who'd come in after that I, I just gave them to him and I knew he'd look after them like, so I felt a bit better for that and I was only in the other prison for about I didn't know this at the time. I got moved to a place called Downview in Sutton, and that was the real test. That was the test. It's, it is their way of testing you to see if you're ready to go back out on the street because you've got the scum of the earth in there. You have got proper low lives, and that's, that's what tests you. Can you survive amongst these people? And were you reacting uh, I, when I got there and within a couple of days, uh, an Irish fella came up to me and made it perfectly clear he didn't like me, didn't like my politics, didn't like what I was in for, was double aggressive with me, double aggressive with me. Excuse me. And I picked up, a, 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 you know, these uh, galvanised buckets, mm. mop buckets, and I just smashed him around the end with it. <laughs> just smashed him around the end with it. And I thought, well, you know, you asked for it. And I walked away, and an elder screw ca- uh, come up to me, and he said to me, um, "Do you know who done that?" Then and I went, "I ain't got a clue, Gov. I ain't got a clue." And he went to me, "The governor's asking questions about you. Are you going to be any 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 problem?" I said, "If I get left alone, I said I won't be any I, I won't be any problem." Uh, just after that, I heard that my mate's uncle had got me out of a tight spot was coming so I got him a cell next to me I got all his canteen ready for him when he got there made sure he had phone cards that was good because he's quite a, quite a clever man quite intelligent man so good chats with him um, I, ju- I went to the business studies course not long enough for me to really gain any qualifications to be quite honest and then one day uh, the head screw come up to me and he said special brancher here they want to talk to you mm. And I said, well, you can turn the fuck up. I said, about two and a half years, come talk to me. I don't want to talk to him. He said, I'd strongly advise you to, to talk to them because if not, if you're, when you're eventually released, they could gate arrest you and issue with further charges. And that made sense in all fairness. That did make sense. And throughout the whole of my sentence, I was genuinely worried about further charges. Um, but either way, I said, no, talk to fuck up. And, uh, not long after that, I got a letter one day. I got called out of the uh, business studies class and I got a letter and uh, it was basically saying, um, is your parole? Like, you know, you'll be, you'll be sort of getting out in the next couple of weeks. And then the day I came out, they let me out a bit earlier, about n- nearly an hour earlier. And I thought, that's a bit strange. And I came out and a car pulled up. Two fellas jumped out of a car. Uh, and I said, you can fuck right off. You can fuck right. And they went, oh, no, 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 we're not the media. Um, we're the police. I said, you can fucking really fuck off then. <laughs> and then they um, and then they proceeded to basically offer me money, uh, set me up uh, to, to, to start a, an industrial clean or a cleaning company and, and so on. And um, I basically said, no, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not interested. How would that have benefited them, you setting up a cleaning company? 
it, it, I'm assuming it would have just kept me in their pocket. I mean, they'd have continued to come for me for information. Um, they did return. They did return. I would say they'd also gone to where I lived. There was a new house. I'd moved into a new house. My wife had completely refurnished this new house. And they'd actually gone and spoke to the caretaker and said, how do people feel about me moving in? Mm. Like I've been some mad lunatic running around here shooting people. Um, but they did come back. Not the same two, I hasten to add. Um, one night I was indoors. Uh, the bell went. I ran upstairs. I looked you know, at the curtain of two fellas standing there. had sort of wax jackets on. Bit of a giveaway. Uh, and they had like um, clipboards, like they were trying to pretend like they were the council or doing a survey of some sorts. So I knew who they were. So I shouted down to my wife. I said, listen, tell them I'm not here. Just tell them I'm not here. Because the kitchen light was obviously someone was in. So she went to the door. Now, this time I'd, I'd had a security gate put in as well. So there was a distance between that and then a distance since the front door. So there was at the security gate. She opened the door. We need to speak to Frank. She's not here. No, we urgently need to speak. No, he's not here. There's been a threat on his life. Standard trick to get you to go to the front door. So I came downstairs and I said, it's right, babe, leave it. I saw it. Anyway, they came in. I said, you've got 10 minutes. You've got 10 minutes. They walked in. One of them went to sit on the city. I said, don't make yourself fucking comfortable, mate. You ain't staying that long. <laughs> anyway, he, 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 he stays down. And they basically offered me money, not only to work with them, they were going to give me money to buy more weapons. And the deal was, was because that would give me a certain amount of kudos. So I look at Frank, he's still in charge, he's come out, he's, but they must not land up in anybody else's, you know, anybody who's going to potentially use them, so to speak. And I thought, I said, sorry, mate, your fucking time's up. Like, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's time to go, you know, it's time to go. But you said about, I've just thought of a funny incident, actually. This is before I got arrested. It was the week leading up to Christmas and the phone went. And a fella said to me, I said, hello, who's that? It's Dave. I said, I don't know any Daves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, we have a chat every now and again. I said, do we? <laughs> he went, yeah. I went, I want to take you out for a drink. So I said, oh, that's all right. I've just given up drink. He went, don't fuck about it. He went, we're in a brand Vauxhall Astral in Buck Street. So I sent my message, listen, I better go around. Better find out what we're us all about, because we had this policy amongst ourselves. Some people say don't speak to them, right? But our policy was it's better to find out what they know, especially when you've just done something and you think, oh fuck, what do they know? So I get in the there's two of them get in the back of the car. They drive me around to a local um, uh, swimming pool. December, it's dark. Back street. They park right under a street light. What do you know, Frank? Who me? You know, fuck all me. I said, I've been out of game and I don't know what's going on. You know, sort of thing. But they knew I wasn't. Because they say this was prior to me going away. What's the word over there then? You know, what's, what are the boys all saying? I said, well, what are you going to fucking tell me? Well, like, you know. Oh, so this car goes by. Two fellas in the front. Younger fella in the back. And I see him look over as he drove by. Fucking strange. Anyway, carried on their chatting away. Car's gone past again. I'm thinking, hold on. Are they, is they saying to this fella, is that him? Do you, you know, do you recognise, mm. is it him? Or are they saying, 
he's the one who you need to get in his company and keep, you know, tell us what he's at. Third time this car's gone round now. So I say to one of them in the front, I said, yeah, I said, you ain't got an A to Z on you, have you? He went, what? I said, I don't need it. I said, that cunt who keeps driving around the block. He went, go and fuck off, get out of the car, get out of the car. I said, I'm not getting that drink then. He went, no. So I said, that's not very fucking Christian, is it? And I had to walk home. I had to walk home. But it was clearly something, innit? It was clearly, you know, that car had not gone around that block three times. ID parade. Exactly. Exactly. So I find that quite funny. So you're still getting stopped at airports? That ceased only because eventually I wrote to the... the, um, uh, what do they call it? The border agency people, the home office, because it was it was it was getting embarrassing. Because I'd come back from uh, I'd come back from Rhodes on a family holiday, and I you know I was getting stopped and you know, a couple of hours at a time. Um, I'd had it coming back from Belfast, Glasgow. You know, I was kind of philosophical about it. Fair enough, I expect that. I'm with me pals, you know, I, I do expect that. Uh, but not family holidays. And, and I'd come back from, um, it was a time I'd come back from uh, Bruges. I'd come, into, I'd come into Stansted. I stopped, my wife took her to one side, took me to one side, kept me for about an hour and 40 minutes. Uh, it, it, it got to the stage where one of them went off and I said to the younger fellow, I said, listen, mate, if I was you, I said, I'd offer me 50, I'd offer me 50 grand for work for you. But his little eyes lit up like, oh, boss, I've broke him down like, you know, I've finally broken him. He come back, the other one come back, the older one. He went, uh, so he, he's whispered in his ear. So he come and sat there. He went, I un-, he said, I, I understand you want to work with us. I said, mate, do yourself a favour. I said, who's this idiot you fucking work with? Right. So again, I brushed that to one side. But I came back from a wedding in Portugal very late in the evening, just myself and my wife, went to go through and got stopped and told to stand to one side. It, it seemed to go on forever. I knew what was going on. And I said, listen, I want I want to speak to special branch. Get special branch here. And at that point, they said, there's no special branch officers on site. So all of a sudden, people in the queues were going, hold on, there's no security. What's going on? Mm-hmm. I kept saying, go and get them, go and get them. They would never, because I knew, I'd know whoever they were going to send, I'd know, because I got pulled that many times at Luton. In the end, I threw my fucking passport. And I said, you have it, I don't want it. Uh, they did let my wife come back through, but they then called two armed police with machine guns to stand next to us. Um, about two in the morning, he's retired now. Uh, this fella turned up, Paul. We'd known him for years. Oh, I think I think it always been fair. I'd come. I might have come back from a funeral, and he was meant to question me. He go, listen, I know where you've been, and you know, he's a nice fella. And uh, he come up. He went, Frank. What's that? Oh, he come up to the two, oh, the two policemen with the guns, and he went, you know, no, so I know Frank. He went, so right. And um, he said, what's that? Me? I said, well, you fucking tell me, Paul. I said, what's? And he said, well, we'd have wanted to talk to you. We'd have, we'd have been here. We'd have been waiting. I said, well, that's what I'd have thought. And um, he, he, he actually went and got our bags for us in all fairness. Mm. And he just went inside the industry. My wife's one went missing. So. Um, but after that, I thought, no, nah, I'm having this. I'm not having this. Uh, and, and in all fairness, as I say, it's not it, it, It's not happened since. It's not happened since. So what's life like for you now? Well, there was some anger problems, definitely, because I'd, I'd got used to living amongst it to a certain degree. So I could be pretty short with people. Mm. 
you know, I was very conscious of that indoors not to be like that, mm. you know, not to sort of snap at my wife over the most silly things. Um, obviously, I had to go and look for employment. Uh, the the, the uh, British Institute of Cleaning Science did come in early. I bought a trade magazine. Um, I went along to a lunch at one of the guild halls in the city. Uh, I got a bit of work off a fella there, which in turn got me in amongst other people. I did got to start eventually getting into business um, with another fella. I seemed to be getting all the contracts and he didn't want to do the work, <laughs> you know. So I've done it. I've, I've worked at a place for 14 years as a dispatch manager. I got made redundant. I've got by. I've got by. I'm not complaining. I've had nice holidays. Um, I've still got all my family. You know, I'm grateful for that. Uh, I have just started to write uh, the follow-up to that book. Left, right, loyalist. Yeah. Um, I think the last line is a good friend of mine saying, where do we go from here? And I say something like, business as usual, only this time I don't intend getting caught. Uh, well, when I did come out, the climate had changed because there was talk of peace. There was talk of ceasefires. So I probably came out in the, with the wrong mindset because I was still... I was still in that. I was in that. Still in that mindset. To me, it was un, to me it was unfinished business, if you like. Um, and I had to channel that in. I had to channel that other ways. And I, I, I did get involved with um, a lot more community politics in Northern Ireland, which obviously I'll, I'll, I'll go into in more detail in the book. But I thought, well, now it's about if it's going to be about politics. It's about empowering people and going to communities and saying, look, you need representation. You need to speak up or you're not going to get what you want. And unfortunately, some interface areas were still experiencing violence. Mm. So when I read every day in the newspapers or on the internet that there's peace, I was like, hold on, not where I go, there's not peace. Mm. So I, I did kind of still have that militant head about me. And I had to find another way of... Um, well, these workouts you're doing, are they getting the aggression out? They're infrequent, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I've had a conversation and I have said that from today that I shall seek some inspiration and go on from that, yeah. Because uh, if I had the same mindset as when I was away, which was 100 miles an hour, basically, I, I, I'd be doing a lot better. But I can be a bit lazy. I can be a bit lazy. Yeah, it's hard to stay mean. And and, and even when I've I've got people saying to me, you know, you you are capable of doing so much more, and you should be doing more. It's a bit like when I listen to some of your talks, and a bit like James when you talk about an addictive nature. I think my addictive nature is one of you pay me a compliment now, and I'll, I'll feed off that for a couple of days. Then it's gone. Mm. What I don't do is I don't carry out the compliment that you've given me. Mm. So if you've said you've enjoyed the book, you should write another one, mm -hmm. then that's what I should do. But I get lazy. Mm. You see? And then yeah. I go backwards. I go backwards because then I enjoy the company of my mates and socialising. Well, then that holds me back. Yeah. So I've had a few conversations lately and um, 
I am currently in work. I've been in it five and a half years. I've been there way too long. It's uh, I'm, I'm getting I'm going you know, brain dead. Doesn't it doesn't test me. Um, and I think like we all find out, we're usually at our best when we are tested. So when I leave here today, uh, that's what I one. I, yes, I do intend improving on my you know general health and um, and getting stuck into the second book. Um, and hopefully, when I've done that, um, again, been listening to what you've been saying about uh, you know um, crime, you know novel, the novels and so the little old ladies as you call them, <laughs> and uh, and having a look at that mm-hmm. and uh, using some of my experiences from the past and creating characters and um, I'm writing some sort of novel. You know, it's a good strategy. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of young people watching these podcasts. Some of them might think that crime and prison is glamorous. Do you have a message for those people? I can see I can see where some of it is glamorous. I can, you know, watch your own story, listen to your own story and see where it's where it's glamorous. Um but it always ends somewhere. It always ends somewhere. And it's usually with a large lump of of, of regret. Um, what I what I find difficult, and this is another reason why I, why I wrote the book, is because I've had so much rubbish written about me, so many bare, uh, barefaced lies. Um, the, the I mean, there's even people that I've appeared in other people's books, proper journalists. You know, they've not even got the sentence right. They've even they've even said I've had a previous conviction for um. For drugs, news to me. Um, I've also added ne- another one is I was selling the guns to people. No, I wasn't. You know, it's and so the book now gives me a chance to say, "Hold on, I'm not having this anymore. I'm not having this anymore." For good or bad, whatever people think, at least it will be my version of events. And I and I'm and I'm trying to turn that care inside, if you like. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big supporter, currently a big supporter. I've been, I've been for years. Be explained better in the second book, but I'm still currently to this day, I'm a big supporter of justice for the 21 campaign, which is seeking justice for the, the victims of the, the Birmingham pub bombings. Wow. Um, so, yeah, if I can do things like that and channel it that way, uh, there are times I can still be angry. There are, there's, there's, there's no doubt about that. But um, I, I suppose to a degree I do wear my heart on my sleeve, you know. Yeah. But um, I am conscious of my age and I want – there are things – probably things that you could have asked me for the last 40 years, what do you want to do? And I go, I don't know. Now I do know what I want to do. And it's a case of some of that energy that I put into other things. I've got a great habit. If something's going wrong with someone, someone needs help with something, I'm there. I drop everything. I'm there, and yet the minute it's for me, I do nothing. <laughs> I do nothing. So that's 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 got to change. And I, and I, and and say my advice to young people is: sort yourself out before you go to prison. Don't don't let the prison bit be the learning curve, and then try and attempt it afterwards. Because so many things can go wrong while you're in that prison. Whether that's you, you know, the physical harm that's going to come there. Whether it's going to be additional charges, which means you're going to stand there a lot longer, which is going to endanger you even more. 
the temptation of the drugs. I understand it. I've seen it. I've listened to enough people. Um, I can I can see why they choose that route. If the, the if they've not got any great confidence in themselves, if sometimes it's just to you know what, rather than me get beaten up by the bigger boys, I go and take drugs of them. And then, as you've described, they then get in depth with them, and the big boys still beat them up anyway. So you know, just try not to get into that. You know, try not to. I could have, I could have easily have been a villain. I could have easily. When I was a young man, I worked with people. I've always been older men's company. When I was younger, I was always in older people's company, and I learned off of them. And because they took me under their wing, you know, I I, I started to become more like them. Uh, I used to look. I used to look after weapons for people. I was sixteen, seventeen. I lived in two rooms, and they said, "Have you got anywhere we can store this bag?" Old sack. I had an attic. I said, "Yeah, okay. You know, I'll look after it for you." No, you know, I'm going to look in the. Odds on, I'm going to look in the sack. <laughs> and it's sawn off shotguns, his handguns, his ammunition, his clubs, his gloves. Um. I'd go around to my local pub, skinny little teenager, stand here with me mates at the bar. These blokes used to come to the door on a Friday night, all suited and booted, looking something like out of a 60s <laughs> gangster film, you know, and they'd come in, all right, Frank, you know, what are you having? What's your mates having? Might, they'd be looking at me, my mates are going, cool, fuck you, know, all right, you know. <laughs> I, you know, they'd give me a score or whatever, which was a lot of money. I was probably only earning about £12 a week. At the time, mm. get in the car, we go to get the bag, they come back, they buy everyone another drink again. Happy days. But, but as I got older and I was in that type of company, I realised you can't go out and have a nice meal with your missus and then have a little firm walk and then you go, not tonight, fellas. I'm out with the old woman. <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Mm. And it's ironic because... I kept myself away from one lot of violence. Potentially, I got myself into something that was even worse. It was even worse, you know. So we've got a positive message there, rounding up on now, and also a teaser for potentially a second podcast with Frank. I've read his book, absolutely brilliant. It's on Amazon. Left, right, royalist. Get it anywhere. Loyalist, not royalist. And it's actually on eBay, unfortunately. Oh, it's on eBay it's not on Amazon now, get it on unfortunately. E get it on eBay. It's not on Amazon at all now. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to speak to Frank about um, getting this available on Amazon and getting an audio book out and getting an e-book out so people worldwide can read the story. And perhaps he'll wear the hood if he comes back and does a second podcast. Um if you've enjoyed the video today, please put a comment in the description. If you if you liked it, give it a like. If you've got a question for Frank, you know, we haven't covered in this book, we haven't covered his early years, the football hooliganism, the things he allegedly did as a paramilitary. So there's loads more room here um, for, for way more gripping stories. So if you would like to see Frank come back on the podcast, or you got a question for him, put it in the uh, comments below this. And um, if you can get your hands on the book on eBay, do. Otherwise, I'll, I'm going to speak to Frank after this about trying to make it available in all formats uh, worldwide on Amazon. 
Right, do you know the Arizona prison handshake? Some of your stories I read, I dread to think what that might eat sell. This is that. Righto, righto. All right, go on. Oh, okay, Come on, Plum. We never had this in prison. <laughs>